I'm gonna cry at some point in recording these two episodes. Oh, Jesus, really? Okay. I mean, not actually, but like okay. inside. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, I can't cry on the outside. I, I think I've got some tissues underneath all that crap on the other table. Oh yeah, all right, fine. I won't have an emotion. <laughs> I was just thinking about when we first heard that there was going to be an adaptation for both of us. That was at the at the memorial, although there was a bunch rumored. Honestly, until you reminded me, we'd heard about it there. I'd forgotten yeah, because Neil Gaiman it was a very like... emotional day, and I didn't really care that much about TV adaptations at the time. Yeah, it was a very emotional day in multiple ways. Yeah, partly me wearing heels around the uh, Natural History Museum, which was a mistake. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah, my feet were killing me by the time we got to the actual memorial. I forgot we went to the Natural History Museum that day. Yeah, I kind of didn't take much for in. I was a bit more focused on how the hell we were going to get to the Barbican from South Kensington. <laughs> it always happens. works itself out. Yep. Eventually. Brackets, Joanna always works it out. <laughs> I have my uses. Um, um, but yeah, so the memorial in my head, I remember the music. Because yeah. I'd never listened to any of, uh, what's it? Steel I Span. Steel I Span at the time. Although a couple of the songs from that album are now on my permanent playlist. I love that album so much. Yeah. They did the Wintersmith album. You and um, To Make a Man. Yeah, are the two that I've got on permanent. Yeah, to make a man's really lovely. Um, I like I shall wear midnight as well. It's very sweet and a little bit sad, but not too yeah. sad. Yeah, I do like that, but I feel like that's one. If I play too much, I'll get sick of. So mm. that's every now and then when I feel like listening to the whole album. Um, and I remember Neil Gaiman. Also, he read the letter from Terry Pratchett asking him to make good omens. Yeah, and um, and it was very sweet and very sad at the end. He said, "All right, you bastard, I'll do it." And, oh, yeah. I, re- I do remember now oh yeah I forgot about the letter and yeah because the- oh. then they gave him Terry's hat and it was very sad like that was a yeah that that's, the, that's the bit that yeah. bashed into my memory over the whole Gnomans but it was the, the, hat. the hat sorry um, so I've got the script book handy and there's a little intro from Neil Gaiman and because it's a nice book it's really lovely it's so good what's under that dust jacket wow that sounded pornographic sorry Ooh. I like a, I love a plain black mm. and has a really nice spine. Gold font. Very good. Uh, so the letter that Terry Pratchett wrote to Neil Gaiman was, I know that you're very, very busy, but no one else could ever do it with the passion that we shared for the old girl. I wish I could be more involved and I'll help any way I can. And it was just so sweet. And obviously he passed away before it actually yeah. got written. But so I thought it was, it's, it's very sweet to have this background context of how it was made and I'm really glad it was made the way it is because I don't think any other adaptation of a novel has ever had quite so much love for the original work behind it. No, I can't... I can't think of any other and I can't imagine this being any better. No. Also, it brought so many new people to it who had not read any Neil Gaiman or Terry Pratchett and were like, oh, what's this weird show? Oh, hang on, I'm really obsessed with all of these characters and love them now. Yeah. One of the nicest things as well is like a huge internet fandom is kind of, obviously there's already a huge Terry Pratchett internet fandom yeah. and a huge Neil Gaiman internet fandom, but the very specific Good Omens fandom that's kind of sprung up and become so much bigger off the wake of the TV series is mm. like the least toxic fandom I've yeah, ever seen no, online. no gatekeeping from the, the yeah. what's it, the, the people who've existing read, Yeah, fans. the people who've yeah. read the books and have battered ancient falling apart copies aren't sort of saying well, well we liked it before it was cool they're just sort of saying oh cool you like it come come sit with us come sit with us yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't it good isn't yeah, it lovely more people. <laughs> yeah it's the like in a world of horrible toxic online everything yeah the good good omens fandom is a very nice part of the internet i also feel like a lot of us uh pratchett fans are kind of treating it as a gateway drug oh yeah to other people like oh you like that do you well oh. uh 
Come this yeah, way. Try, try a little bit of this on the Saturday yeah. night and see how that makes you feel. Cheeky bit of Discworld. A mm, little bit of Discworld, maybe. You know, skirt, skirt around the witches arc. Yeah. Uh, oh, for you, sir, for you, I'd recommend uh, possibly the maybe possibly the, the watch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the guards, yeah. Oh, oh, you've read all 40 books. <laughs> you is haven't that, slept is that a good drug days. dealer impression? I can't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know what drug dealers <laughs> my are. Only, my only interactions with drug dealers were with people who sold weed in school, which <laughs> is pretty low key. Yeah. Should we make a podcast then? Um, yeah, let's make a podcast. Awesome, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to the True Shall Make You Fret uh, Ineffable Edition. Usually this is a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series in chronological order, but we are here today to talk about Good Omens. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. And having talked about the book, we are talking today about episodes one to three of the Good Omens TV series. Uh, obviously, we are a spoiler light podcast and avoiding spoiling any future events for Discworld books, inclu- including all events in the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown. Mm-hmm. As far as Good Omens goes, I'd say major spoilers for the book, but we will avo- avoid spoiling the end of the TV series because this is going out just before it's finished. So we will try and keep our discussion to episodes one to three. Yeah, yeah. So, quick follow-up from last week. Yeah. We were talking about Radio 4 and radio plays airing on Radio 4. Mm. And we kind of completely forgot to mention that a really good Good Omens radio play exists. Oh, well, you forgot. I didn't know it did, so... Have you not listened to it, then? No. Oh, it's really good. It has uh, Peter Serafinowicz as Crowley and Mark Heap as Aziraphale. Okay. And a bunch of other really good people in it. Um, The one whose name I can't remember, who's Oregon and Fresh Meat. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. she's in Ghosts as well. She plays Anathema. Okay. Uh, Colin Morgan plays Newt, which is perfect casting. I don't know who that is. He's Merlin. Uh. You know, like the BBC series Merlin. That's no. like young Merlin. It's got Anthony Head. No. Have you never watched that show? No. Jesus, Francine. Okay, sorry. It's like it's really bad, but watch it. It's so good. No. What? <laughs> it's not really bad. It's amazing. Is it it's worth ridiculous. paying my TV license for? Oh, it's on Netflix. Okay, then yeah, I might. <laughs> <laughs> It was originally on the BBC. It's got Anthony Head in it. All right. Okay, I'll watch it. But um, I, I guess I'll listen to the Good Omens radio play when I feel like another rendition of this. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've almost overdosed on Good Omens now, having read through the book twice and watched the TV series twice in two mm. weeks. Um, the other thing, obviously, I mentioned last week that I was going to wait and talk about the definition of ineffability this week. Oh, you did, did you? Yeah. You looked it up. Um, no, someone texts me the definition, ineffable, too great or extreme to be described in words. And I'm really grateful that I was texted the definition because otherwise I would have like accidentally gone on a rabbit hole on etymology mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, spent, spent an hour that I didn't have on that. So thank you, Ebony, for texting me. Thank you, Ebony. And that's your low-key shout-out. Now stop asking for one. <laughs> I'm such, I'm such Does a you want a high-key shout-out next? Uh, maybe, maybe we'll do like a musical time. number. Uh, I feel like doing a musical number on a podcast is not... I mean, there's no point getting elephants and dancing girls in if no one can see them, Francine. I could see them. Where are we going to put elephants and dancing girls in your flat, Francine? <laughs> you always steamy my creativity, but fine. <laughs> we can do a musical number next year, or right. if I move house. We can do it in the garden. We can't record in the garden. So obviously, we don't have a previously on, because we're talking about the beginning episodes of the TV series. Yeah, so Good Omens, uh, the TV series, is based on Good Omens, the book, which was a collaborative book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, who is the author of the books we usually recap. 
Um, this is a bit of an oddity, really, isn't it? Because although it's based on a book partly by Terry Pratchett, uh, Terry Pratchett sadly died before this was made, so it's very had much... very limited role in it. Yeah, apart very lim- from you know conceiving of the yeah fucking thing. Um, <laughs> but then normally an adaptation doesn't have the creators of the original source material that heavily involved in it. And this, so this is a bit of an oddity in that Neil Gaiman literally wrote the scripts and show ran. Did he write all the scripts? Did he? Yeah, he he did all the writing and he ran. He was the showrunner, which doesn't. What normally does showrunner mean? I, it, it, you're in charge of the whole thing. Okay. So it's your creative vision from top to bottom. Basically. Okay. Cool, cool, it's cool. like one of the biggest roles you can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, like DB Weiss and David Benioff were the showrunners of Game of Thrones. It's a big thing. It's the Are they the ones that fucked have. it? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, no, I heard really some guys fucked, fucked it. it. Yeah, they fucked it. Yeah, they 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 didn't do good things to that that poor show. <laughs> Sorry, this is not a good Game of Thrones podcast, and never will be. <laughs> Aww. I mean, one day we will do that bonus episode where you get drunk and explain Game of Thrones, the TV series, to me, but... especially the final two seasons. <laughs> but we really don't have time to get you drunk today. Oh, fine. Um. So yeah. So that is basically the context of it. It's. It's a TV series that... It's a limited six-episode thing. It's very good. Yeah, six episodes, hour-long each. It's well worth watching, as I'm guessing any listeners already know. Yeah, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've watched it. Yeah. And although I can't say this for sure, I imagine it's pretty enjoyable whether or not you've read the book. Well, I've got friends and people who are in my life who have watched it having never read the book and are obsessed. And I yeah. have now since like gone back and picked up the book. But <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely there's another layer of nerdy enjoyment there if are... you're super into the book anyway because you go, ooh, Easter egg. Look yeah. At, look at oh, there's so many good little <gasps> Easter eggs. Right, should we talk about it properly then? Yeah, let's talk about like the actual first episode, yeah? Cool. Episode one in the beginning. So in this episode, God explains the entire history of the universe. Pretty succinctly. Yeah. Um... We begin in the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve kicked out and the whole apple thing, and we meet Aziraphale and Crowley, the angel and the demon. Uh, Then we jump way forward into the future to Crowley receiving the Antichrist. We see the amazing baby swap that also takes place in the book, and the Antichrist go home with a lovely couple from Tadfield. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see Gabriel interrupting Aziraphale as he enjoys a nice meal of sushi to talk about things <laughs> being afoot. John Ham. Ah, oh, John Ham. Aziraphale and Crowley, the friendly angel and demon, panic about the end of the world, get very drunk in a bookshop after dinner at the Ritz, and make an agreement to co-parent the Antichrist till he comes of age in the hope that they can prevent the apocalypse. Sounds like your perfect Friday night. Excellent Friday night for me. So we jump to five years later, we see... Uh, Aziraphale as a gardener and we see Crowley as the wonderful nanny Ashtoreth looking after all the child they think is the Antichrist. He isn't. We see the Antichrist grow up. 11 years later Mm -hmm. from the birth of the Antichrist Mm -hmm. we come to what we think is the Antichrist's 11th birthday party. When Mm -hmm. a hellhound fails to turn up Aziraphale and Crowley realise they've got the wrong kid. What a waste. Yep. At which point we meet the real Antichrist, Adam and his gang, the them. With lovely twangy background music. Yes, as they hang out in an idyllic little village in Oxford. Golden light, it's always three o'clock in the afternoon. And Aziraphale and Crowley say welcome to the end times, before trying to prevent them. Just as well, really. Yes, very good of them. So, let's have a look at what you've written about this. Well, I thought I'd start with talking about some of the uh, the characters and the casting. Mm-hmm. This 
this section will fade away as we get forward to episode six. Yeah. We meet the most new characters here, obviously. So Frances McDormand voicing God is an amazing thing. Yeah. And not just, ooh, it's a woman voicing God, but like Frances McDormand's amazing as well. Yeah, yeah. And she's going to be in the new Wes Anderson film, which I'm really excited about. The trailer came out for it yesterday. I don't know. Do you know who Wes Anderson is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't it's, know what the uh, film's going to be. The French Dispatch. It's uh, kind of loosely inspired by The New Yorker. It looks like someone has gone, what is the platonic ideal of a Wes Anderson film? Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. Cool. But also, I just really like Frances McDormand existing and doing things. Hmm. And I think she voices God perfectly. Like, the whole opening voiceover where she says, I don't play dice with the universe. I play an ineffable game of my own choosing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's very nice. It's... Uh authoritative and slightly smug just as I imagine God would be yep but I also like obviously they know making this that a lot of people will really love the book and there is so much good writing in the book Mm. that rather than lose any of it that there is they've found a way to use God as a narrator so they could keep in like a lot of the best lines from the book yeah which is definitely a stroke of luck that they've got that voice of God option because this wouldn't have worked it without the really narration. Suffered, yeah. yeah, I think that really makes it. They'd have had to work in some really awkward exposition. Oh yeah, and I hate awkward exposition. There are still Bad a name. couple of. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, we're awkward exposition with, as you know, Bill. <laughs> um, Zero Fell and Crowley, obviously Michael Sheen and David Tennant. I don't think anything has ever been cast quite as well. We're not spending the entire episode thirsting over David Tennant and Francine. I'm not thirsting over anything. I was sighing with happiness. Okay, I'm thirsting. Thirsting comes later. Okay. <laughs> In a bath. He's still got the weird hair right now. I like the weird hair. Yeah. I don't mind I don't mind his eleven years ago hair. The man bun that he has sort of five years later. There's a brief man bun moment that I could definitely do without. I didn't notice a man bun. I think I just blocked that out. It's a very short scene. I like his 90s hair, which I assume it's 90s. I don't know. Just going by the sunglasses. Yeah, there's well, early 2000s maybe. Yeah. There anyway, so David many... Tennant's hair aside. But yeah, we meet both, obviously the characters of Aziraphale and Crowley are mm-hmm. kind of, it's weird. The shift is definitely more focused on them than the book is. Do you think that happened after the casting when mm. they realised how good it was? No, I think it happened during the right. Like, if you look at the scripts, it, okay. I think it happened during the writing process. Yeah. Um, Were the scripts kind of done and finished by the time casting? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, there's a couple of jokes about casting in the script that are quite funny. Um, there's a bit. Uh, it's like, I think it's like episode four or something, where the script says that a character should be played by William Shatner. Obviously, it's not in the TV series, <laughs> but I kind of really wish William Shatner had a cameo in Good Omens now. <laughs> but yeah, Michael Sheen and David Tennant are perfect casting. I did find it quite interesting. I was reading an interview with Michael Sheen, and he talked about the fact that he intentionally did play Aziraphale to be a little bit in love with Crowley. And okay. it is, if I had to have one criticism of any of the acting in it, is that Aziraphale is a bit more camp than I imagined him. But I mean, in the book, people say... He's as gay as a tree full of monkeys or something, don't they? Oh, yeah. But I... he Not in a... He's quite silly. Okay, yeah. And sort of yeah. giggly. And I always pictured him as a little bit more restrained in the book. Sure. So, some of that's just my imagination. Like, yeah, yeah. And I love what Michael Sheen does with him. Mm-hmm. But I think he sometimes almost comes off as a bit of a butt of a joke. Yeah, I can see what he's doing because he's trying to make the kind of... The, the love not in a weird 
way, just in a super, I admire this guy so much kind of way. Yeah, like there's always a very cute little crush. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's he's very sweet and he's very Mm -hmm. flirty and giggly and it's, I really like it. It's just very different from how I imagined it when I read the book. I do. I, I think it helps to contrast with his serious moments, though. When he has serious moments, God, mm. he's such a good actor. Mm. I mean, they both are, but Michael Sheen, the things he can do with his face without seeming to move his face at all. That's it. They've got quite different acting styles in that way, haven't they? Like yeah, da- David, David Tennant's Tennant very limb. expressive with his whole body and yeah. face. And yeah, Michael, Michael Sheen's very uh, restrained. And does amazing subtle things. I mean, the way David Tennant, like in the whole show, seems to move entirely from the hip which is very... Have you ever tried actually walking like that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> While not in heels. Although oh. he's still got a bit of a Cuban heel thing going on. But just the way he manages to lead entirely from his pelvis without seeming like he's drunk, apart from the scenes in which he's drunk, mm. and do that much with his arms. Like, yeah. There's just... Our yeah. listeners can't see, but I'm doing a squid impression. It's very nice. Okay, so yeah, so obviously we love the casting there. We Uh meet the Youngs, um, Mr. and Mrs. Young. How old is Daniel Mays? I was making an internal guess and I can't. He's got a proper baby face. He's got a baby face, but in a really ageless way. Like He could be anywhere between 20 and 40. Yeah. I didn't look up any of the actors' ages, but I do think they're, again, they're really good casting. They managed to look like a very 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 suburban couple mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's been fun going through like the imdb pages of all the actors in this because almost every british actor that was in this has been in casualty hobby city doctors and the bill which is, is a that of... just the general circuit yeah. <laughs> yeah this is the rite of passage that all the young british actors go through but it, it's so ubiquitous to the point where like a play i was in where we were playing actors had yeah. a silly song where it was sort of da 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 and we've all done the bill uh, so the Dowlings, the American couple who give birth to the spare baby that are supposed to end up with an, a- with an antichrist for mm-hmm. a child. Nick Offerman. Uh, Nick fucking Offerman, you've written down I just here. Really that, fucking love Nick- no, I just really no. fucking love Nick Offerman. Um, I do love Nick Offerman. There was something in the script book about it um, that Neil Gaiman, I think, basically said I, I cast him before I wrote it. Huh. Uh, and Jim Winter, Jill Winternwitz. Uh, plays his wife but I was mostly excited to just see Nick Offerman because he's they needed someone to be very American and if you're going to cast someone to play an American mm. like that, that is very perfect he is very American although it did In disturb me to see him moustacheless because I'm very used to him as Ron Swanson well yeah when he's when he doesn't have a moustache usually it's because something's gone horribly wrong yeah. in Parks and Rec so, so like, I was oh, very concerned about his moustache your face <laughs> rubbed off due to friction sorry oh no <laughs> Okay, we don't need to fill this with Parks and Rec references. Uh, we meet all of the chattering nuns, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Sister Mary is played by Nina Sasanya, and mm-hmm. it was really bugging me that I couldn't work out where I knew her from, and then I realised it was from Love Actually. Oh, I okay. hate her character in Love Actually. Oh. <laughs> she's the one that's like the assistant to the Prime Minister, and she's really mean and calls Martine McCutcheon fat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. But I didn't recognise her. It did take me a minute. Mm. I'm so bad at recognising faces. Oh, me too. I will sit there just kind of half angrily for most of an episode before going, ha! Yeah, we've got uh, Haster and Liger as well, mm-hmm. played by Ned Dennehy and Ariane Bakari. Oh, that's a bit of follow-up. Didn't you actually find out what Liger was, finally? Oh, what, the origin of his name? Yeah, because yeah, so... I found Haster and I couldn't find Liger. Yeah, I uh, end up going down a whole rabbit hole of looking at Neil Gaiman's Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, someone asked him... I take him it on... that one doesn't have porn on it. Uh, oh, there was very little porn on... No, no, there wasn't any porn on Neil Gaiman's Tumblr. <laughs> Uh, hi, Mr. Gaiman, just a quick question. Where did you get the name Liger? It appears to be a Roman surname, an ancient region in Italy, or a genus of shrimp, or did it some from co- come from somewhere else? And his answer was, I made it up, it sounded demony. Cool, yeah, good. 
So uh, I'm really glad it wasn't something as ridiculously obscure as that shrimp thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, Hester and Liger are both done so well in this. They managed to get the just the right amount of demonic looking and creepy face stuff. Uh, Hester is, I just thought, absolutely fantastic. Like, I've written it down somewhere, but... Um, the the way he plays the overstated shrieking and emotion and like hysteria through it yeah he, he could have fallen back on oh cool can't collect a demon but he just like went full shriek and i loved it i thought he, it was such a good choice there's so many good little comedy moments he gets and for a demon that doesn't have a sense of humor like that mm-hmm. actor mm-hmm. has such good comedic chops i haven't really seen him in much else uh no me neither but he did oh fuck it was just so good yeah i really loved both of them and then, obviously, one of the most perfect bits of casting and character in the whole thing is we meet Gabriel, played by John Hamm. Fucking God, he made me laugh so much. So Gabriel's not even really in the book, but, um, like, uh, again, yeah. scroll back in the introduction, and I've seen him talk about it elsewhere, he said a lot of the extra stuff that they put in was stuff that they sort of had ideas for the sequel or they had talked about or wanted to put in somewhere at some point, and Gabriel was very much part of that. And yeah. it's so good. If you've got John Hamm. Oh man sorry i i kind of um briefly pausing where david tennant thirst to thirst over john <laughs> i kind of forget that he's such a good subtle comedic actor because i see him in a lot of because um, american like, shows honestly um and that kind of he doesn't get comedy scripts everything. often but yeah. when he gets comedy script he's so funny mm, mm. um like because obviously mad men's mad men's a great show but it's not really a funny show no um i was thinking the other comedy role I can remember him in is in 30 Rock. Oh, yeah, where he plays the guy who doesn't understand that he's yeah. ridiculously handsome. Yeah, and that's very funny, but it's in a much more yeah, over-the-top he... funny way, which I fucking love 30 Rock, don't get me wrong, but it's a different kind of humour. Yeah, it's it's an American sitcom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in this, he is so, so subtly funny just by being slightly off-centre of what humanity is. He's, he just looks a little bit sociopathic around the eyes all the time and then that comes out more as it goes on and and he's sort of got that weird like intense friendly businessman vibe yeah like someone who oh definitely... yeah like someone who says your name too much oh yeah when someone meets you and they're like oh yes francine very good to meet you francine so have you heard francine about yeah. our new project francine put down how to wake friends and influence people for three seconds and, and try being like an a actual human, human yeah. being yeah <laughs> Or like one of those people who makes way too much eye contact with you because yeah. they've read that you make eye contact to seem personable. Yeah, or puts their hand on your shoulder. Oh God, that's the worst. Yeah, and probably puts his hand on on your waist to walk past you as well. Oh, that's a bit, that's another step towards a different kind of businessman. Oh, that is a step towards a different kind of businessman. But I still think John Hamm as Gabriel would do it, but not in a creepy way. Yeah, just yeah, in yeah. A, yeah. Just in a, I'm not aware of the fact that some people don't like being touched because human bodies are new to me. Yes, <laughs> I do love the whole. I, I don't sully my, this temple with gross matter. I do like the clothes. Though. Mm. There's a <laughs> in the in the script. There's a. a couple of scenes that were written and didn't make it into the show and mm. one of them is just a very silly scene of Xerophile in sort of Regency England and they're trying to promote him and um, say that he's not working on Earth anymore and he's trying to get himself out of it <laughs> but it would have I'm really really I get why they cuss it they, it was it didn't need to be there it was just a really silly funny scene but we could have seen John Hamm in Regency era tailoring and I'm really upset that it was cut for that reason it's a shame they didn't film it and then like release it with the blu-ray yeah. edition or something <laughs> i just i just want to see john yeah. hammond you know the white socks because i bet he's got a very well-turned calf i bet it's very well-turned calf and in the curly wig <laughs> oh no, no here, I mean, are, here are uh 
specific yums part ways. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, are you yucking my yum? I am. No, I am stopping the description of this yum so that I do not have to yuck it. Yeah, fair enough. We also get a little bit of Beelzebub here, um, mm-hmm. and played by Anna Maxwell Martin, who again is a really, really funny actor. Uh, she, her, and Gabriel almost have like a more distant version of Zerifal and Crowley's relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you do get scenes with the two of them together, it's brilliant. Yeah, they play off each other really well, and you can tell they're really enjoying it. But I think just Anna Maxwell Martin in general is having so much fun doing that role. She sort of sneers at everything. And is very bored of everything. Yes. Not as in the actor is sneering at yeah, the character, yeah, 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 but the way yeah. Beelzebub is sort of... Yeah, yeah, she is very... Bored and nasal sneering. and has this furious supervisor vibe to Gabriel's over-friendly businessman. So yeah, so obviously when we talk about a book, we normally pick out some favourite quotes. I have picked out some favourite quotes and line readings from the series because mm-hmm. it's so good. And there are little bits that aren't necessarily in the book. And sure. one of my favourites is... Um, this is Aziraphale and Crowley... Heading to Aziraphale's bookshop, having had lunch at the Ritz. Mm-hmm. And um, Aziraphale's sort of saying, well, yes, because you're evil. You're a demon. Get thee behind me, foul fiend. Oh, after you. Yes. Also the one I noted down, so I don't have one to go with. Oh, I'm but... sorry. No, it's good. It was, um... oh, I just fucking love those two men. Oh, it's so good. It's so irritatingly good. How dare they be that good? Yeah. Um, I also wanted to pick out, like, not for every episode, but... The fact, the way they use Queen in this, mm. um, I really like that it's never stated that things that stay in a car become mm-hmm. a best of Queen album the way it is in the book. Yeah. But they've still nodded to it by using the music of Queen just randomly playing in Crowley's car a yeah. lot. So I've been and pe- it, that's after, like, there's a shot of it being something else and then put in, isn't it? Or no, no, no? It, it, it never. Re- I don't think it ever actually addresses it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it is just they use the music, which um, again, looking through interviews with Neil Gaiman and stuff, he did say. Uh, about the radio play, he said we tried to we couldn't get Queen for the radio play. Brian May wouldn't give us permission to use it, mm-hmm. so we approached him about it for the TV series, expecting him to say no. And he said, "No, no, no, of course." And I'm really sorry I wouldn't let you use it before. So he had a complete change of heart somewhere okay. in those four years, which I thought was very sweet. So yes, my favourite use literally of it, might have just been caught in one of bad day last time, isn't it? Sometimes it could it's be just, something yeah. <laughs> like that. My favourite use of it in this episode is Crowley as he drives up to Haster and Liger. The line from Bohemian Rhapsody, Beelzebub has a devil for a... It's not Beelzebub has a devil for a sideboard, but I wrote that down because I was very <laughs> tired and I'm not sure what the actual... Beelzebub. Uh, so I've been looking through the script as we went along mm-hmm. to see little bits that might have made it there that didn't make it into the show. And there were a couple of scenes written for the sort of opening scenes of this episode. Sure. Um, you see Aziraphale hanging out in a shop and just sort of performing very sweet, small little miracles, uh-huh. like... Uh, helping a woman struggling with a pushchair. And there was a whole scene of Crowley invading the BT Tower with an army of rats to uh, do the tying up the mobile phone networks. Oh, sure, sure. That I'm kind of glad I didn't make it in, but I found it quite funny the way um, Neil Gaiman wrote about it in the script saying that he wrote in these extra scenes of Aziraphale performing small miracles and Crowley invading the BT Tower and then said, and then I realised that after all, the story does start with a demon turning up to a graveyard to receive the Antichrist and 27-year-old me is laughing and pointing at me very smugly. Yeah, fair enough. Um, any other really big change from the book for this section? Um, obviously, there are lots of small changes yeah, yeah, and things. We don't get to see the bit where Aziraphale and Crowley are a bit older in their uh, Warlock's tutors, which um, I would have quite liked to have seen both of them in a classroom setting or a private, like a homeschooling setting, because I think it would have been quite funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always find it interesting seeing like what little moments can be cut to streamline a story and what can't. 
so I was I was having fun paying attention to that yeah I can yeah I can see why they cut that bit of the two yeah it didn't need that it's not as funny as as David Tennant in drag I mean I would wear that wear that outfit Mm. oh yeah yeah sure that's a pretty good outfit it's a nice aesthetic Mm. um speaking of aesthetics I really want David Tennant's sunglasses in the first part so Antichrist, 11 years ago. Oh, so not no. his Valentino sunglasses, but the other ones. No, yeah. Uh, the Persol PO3166S right. is the exact make of those sunglasses. I wanted them so much I actually looked it up. Yep. And they are quite expensive, so I'm going to find an ASOS cheapy version. That sounds like a better plan. But I really like them. I'm super into circle lenses now. I do. I've got some giant pink circle lenses and I do really love them. <laughs> they make me look ridiculous, but everything's sort of literally roast tinted glasses. They're great. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I thought it was quite interesting, like especially in in these first three episodes, how much the focus of the series is more on Aziraphale and Crowley. Mm. Like I, I know I already talked about it a bit when we talked about the book, that it really is more focused on them for the first half. Yeah. But for this, it's like, no, this is a story about these two and everyone else are side characters to these two like if you watch like the opening credit sequence which is an amazing gorgeous animation mm. of the two of them going through it all yeah yeah um mm. so remind this part of the story in the book then where, where else is the focus it's no it is really focused on them at the beginning i'm just saying that they are much more the main characters throughout them whereas oh, okay, in the sure, book sure, sure. like yeah. the focus really shifts away from them for the second yeah. half and they're separated for such a big chunk of the second yeah, half yeah. which again we'll talk about that when we get to uh, the next episode mm-hmm. of the podcast yeah but also like the way it builds the relationship with them a lot there's a lot more to do with their relationship so i'm going to come back to them as we talk about each episode yeah yeah um because there is so much more than there is in the book yeah like they are friends and colleagues and really quite fond of each other in the book and it's well there's a lot you can do with a visual medium that you can't do in the same way in a book, isn't there? The, yeah, and the there's, looks a lot to do and the, yeah. there's a lot to do with storytelling as well because the story the story is being told in such a different way. Like you watch the character the relationships between all the characters develop, whereas in the book can go, these are characters in an established relationship. Now let's see what they do in that. Yeah. That I don't think you can do in a TV series, especially a limited series like this, that you need an arc for them. Mm. There is a moment, uh just a throwaway line that I did like as a sort of look at their relationship. They were um they they say something about a smell and something's different and uh Aziraphale starts saying oh well is this new cologne where Barbara and Crowley just went no I know what you smell like yes yeah <laughs> I thought the way the baby swap bit was done was amazing the whole three card Monty thing yeah, yeah. where they uh, actually using this animation of the playing cards and someone doing a three card Monty as they show the thing and it was fairly accurate to like I know enough about how three card Montys are done oh I don't yeah yeah that yeah. it was fairly Your accurate husband is a magician after all and I used to do it as well oh yes of course yeah. I always forget that now I, one of my favourite tricks to do was and I, I didn't perform it very often because it was difficult and quite stressful but I had mm-hmm. like a stand up version of a three card Monty where you're putting these cards down in someone's hand and they're changing and the lady's shifting oh sure that's um I mostly like because it was designed by a really good magician called Garrett Thomas who uh is really really nice oh that's yeah. good out of all the like nice the big well-known magicians I met while I was doing it he was the one who was immediately like cool a girl's doing it I don't meet many girls doing it so I'm going to talk to you and ask how my trick works for you and if you would do something different and try and make it more gender neutral uh-huh because, yeah, no, misogyny in the magic world, that's a thing. I bet it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was really lovely. Uh, the drunk scene between the two of them after they go for lunch at the Ritz. Sorry, I'm leaping from topic to yeah, topic Yeah, no, now. you're good, you're good. You're good. <laughs> um, 
I didn't realise Monty was spelt with an E, by the way. That's new to me. Yeah. Cool, good to know. Um, um, what does Monty mean? In that case, that sounds like it's Italian or something. I think it's like a reference to Monte Carlo, but I could be wrong. Okay. I could be completely wrong. That's complete conjecture. Um, Sorry. Yeah, no. Drunk. Drunk in a bookshop. Yeah, so after the three-card Monty and the baby swap, uh-huh. they go for lunch at the Ritz, and then they're drunk at the bookshop. I already talked a bunch about how much I love that scene, and I got to see David Tennant do it, which was really funny, because mm-hmm. he was doing his Michael Sheen impression. Is it good? It, it, it was it like watching it. Yeah. Like, was like I, mean, I know we show. get to say, see him do a Michael Sheen impression at some point very briefly, but watching yeah. him do a whole scene must be really cool. Oh, it was so good. Well, it was it was from the book, so it was mm-hmm. it was him doing his voice narrating and Crowley's voice and Michael Sheen's voice and, ah, oh, so good. So, so good. <laughs> um, but one of the other things I love is the camera work in that scene. There's some really good camera, camera moments throughout this, mm. but the way the camera moves, it kind of sways as if it's drunk. I didn't notice that. Oh, did you That's not? So cool, yeah. Yeah, it kind of spins around them. And it's it's a technique that gets used quite a lot, but it, normally it's really heavy-handed and irritating. But this yeah. is just enough that you feel like you're kind of swaying with them and you're, the room is, you're seeing it through their eyes of the room spinning a bit. Oh, that's cool. It's really subtle. Also, David Tennant's drunk voice is very Eddie Izzard. Yes. There was the bit where he's, uh, what are they putting in bananas these days? And it was... <laughs> it, was, it was so covered in bees covered in bees <laughs> control beat print sorry <laughs> don't put jam on a magnet don't put your granny in a bag oh my God. sorry I'm sorry I really now, like Eddie is, Izzard you thinking of Eddie Izzard as like your version of being possessed during a seance <laughs> yeah pretty much also sometimes I start speaking French yeah maybe here's our Ron don't put jam on a magnet <laughs> St Paul's letter to the Corinthians Corinthians letters back why the fuck are you writing to us I want to watch Eddie Izzard no come on no, we're, we're making doing a podcast, podcast. <laughs> we can do an Eddie Izzard spin off podcast <laughs> so, yeah. that would just be rubbish though that would just be us doing bad impressions of Eddie Izzard we oh, yeah, have nothing no to say about stand up <laughs> um, so yeah so I just I thought David Tennant was doing that very well but I yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he took some influence from Eddie Izzard there mm. because that was such a Izzardy line read. I know he's not the only person yeah. who does that. Watching actors do drunk is funny because there's two ways of doing it. There's doing I'm clearly drunk, which is the way David Tennant does it. Yeah. And there's the less funny but more realistic way. I'm of... trying not to seem drunk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I which like I it. think Michael Sheen did. Michael Sheen did very well and I'm glad it was sort of one of one and one of the other. Yeah. Because if it's if it's drunk and it's meant to be comedy like it needs to be exaggerated and not realistic. And... Yeah, but he did it in a good way. He didn't do the bad acting, exaggerated drunk, which is... Feck. And then after you get their arrangement, like we were talking about um, him as Nanny Ashtoreth and mm. Michael Sheen as the gardener, mm. the teeth. Oh, yeah, that was... Michael Sheen's weird false upsetting. teeth. I didn't like that. It is, so I'm not hugely involved in, like, the fan fiction and shipping side of the fan fiction just because it's not, like my go-to thing I look for on the internet mm-hmm. um, but I have I follow lots of Good Omens accounts so I have seen lots of it and one of the funniest ones was someone's sort of fan theory headcanon that obviously Aziraphale and Crowley are in a relationship mm-hmm. by this point and they're both intentionally trying to gross each other out with their costumes and be like hey you still fancy me so I think and I as much as I'm not super into super into into the shipping I do kind of like the thought of Aziraphale going ha he's still going to fancy me even with these stupid teeth in <laughs> For those of us who don't spend that much time on Tumblr, what's headcanon? Uh, so it's just what someone thinks could be going on in the background. Okay, quick. Their personal idea of what the, the canon of it is. Okay. Um, 
yes then shipping is when you think two people are in a relationship I... canon is so canon is the, the canon is the actual facts of the matter yeah and then head canon is like your own personal facts okay if that makes sense yeah, yeah. okay cool, cool yeah yeah i like that sorry i forget not everyone lives on the internet quite as much as i mean as we've said before i do live on the internet as well it's just different corners of it yeah. Um, and I'm starting to think maybe I should shift a little on onto your neighbourhood because it's less infuriating than Reddit. Yeah, I, I, I limit my Reddit time quite a lot. I did um, my usual recycling, uh, kill my account, made a new one, follow nice subs for a bit, we'll see. Well, within two days I broke and resubbed to Am I the Arsehole, but we'll see. Uh, so you're stick to only following Am I the Arsehole, the Twitter account that reposts Am I the Arseholes? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, because yeah, then I just get the good ones. Um, while we're talking about the bookshop, sorry. Yeah, tangented. sorry, wait, yeah. What are we doing? While we're talking about the bookshop, um, there's so many great little Easter eggs and set dressing moments. One of them is Aziraphale's mm-hmm. bookshop opening hours, which I've written down here. Oh, I'm glad you did, because I just took a photo and I can't be bothered to transcribe. Uh, I will read them out because it's perfect. Mm-hmm. I open the shop on most weekdays around 9.30 or perhaps 10am. While occasionally I open the shop as early as 8, I have been known not to open until 1, except on Tuesday. I tend to close about 3.30pm or earlier if something needs tending to. However, I might occasionally keep the shop open until 8 or 9 at night. You never know when you might need some light reading. On days that I am not in, the shop will remain closed. On weekends, I will open the shop during normal hours unless I am elsewhere. Bank holidays will be treated in the usual fashion with early closing on Wednesdays or sometimes Fridays. For Sundays, see Tuesdays. That's part of the kind of um, technique of not wanting anybody to buy your books. Yes, people who own fancy second-hand bookshops don't want anyone to actually buy a book in there. Actually, I suppose that's the only reference to that in the show, isn't it? Because they didn't, I'm guessing, didn't want to show Aziraphale being rude to customers. Yeah. He's made, in some ways, almost a lot nicer in the show. Mm, mm. Not, like, in a bad way, but I think you see a little bit more of his mean streak in the book early yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, or he's he's a lot nicer to humanity, I should say. Yes. He's he's got a lot more time for humanity, whereas in in the book, at least early on, he sort of treats them as a bit of an inconvenience mm, unless they're mm. benefiting him. He cares about the composers and the chefs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the sushi. I, also, watching this really made me want sushi. And yeah, the last thing I really wanted to talk about with this episode was the amazing visual of heaven and hell. Um, when you see them going in through the main entrance and the way they do oh, yeah, the yeah, thing yeah, with the escalators. Yeah. But then also the aesthetics of it, rather than hell being fire and sulfur, it being a dingy, leaking, squalid office building. Yes, and that was that was so effective that I hated watching it. Yeah, oh God, it made me, it made yeah. me want to sort of crawl inside right. myself and hide and wear a coat. Yeah, yeah. It was, and then heaven being this big, white, open, modern space with no furniture. But a really cool view. But, oh yeah, they had like all of the wonders of the world. You had the skyscrapers and the pyramids yeah, as part of the Big view. Ben and, um, yeah. I thought that was really cool, but also like just as horrible place to spend time. Like if you yeah. worked in one of those really open plan spaces. Yes. Yeah, no, horrible. I don't like that aesthetic. Drafty. Oh yeah, so, I mean, it looked chilly. Mm-hmm. It looked very chilly. That's what Gabriel's got, Gabriel's got the whole roll neck jumper thing the whole time. It's very chilly in heaven. Yeah. And then I guess the the middling bit would be earth earth and maybe the bookshop or something like that yeah because it's pretty close together isn't it like the contrast between the coziness of the places where Aziraphale and Crowley hang out yeah they very much have their own home comforts uh so yeah so that's episode one Mm -hmm. anything else you want to say about episode one that you particularly liked or disliked what have I got here uh sister Mary uh what's her chops what's her name uh Nina 
Nina Sasania. Yeah. Sasania. Nina Sasania. Um, her expressions are beautiful. She's a really good actor. Oh yeah, her eyebrows do so much work there. Yeah, yeah. Um, um uh, the the bit where they do the interpretation of the wink. Oh, that bit was so good. Where it sort of pauses and there. Yeah, she's got a really beautifully subtly expressive face, um, and I just thought she was fantastic in such a little bit part and she obviously put so much heart into it well i think as much as it's a bit part it's a part that it's an important bit it's an important bit and i think it's people who who knew the book would have been watching for yeah yeah. i like the level of cameos across the series actually because you could have stuffed every famous actor in there you could have just done nothing but cameo but there is a nice mix of a lot of the bigger name characters and not huge name actors Mm -hmm. Uh, like uh, the woman who played Anathema, I haven't seen a whole bunch else, and yeah. uh, the horse people. Yeah. Um, and where you do have little cameos of slightly better-known actors, it's because they're very good actors. It's not just. Yes. It's and another. It, and here's David Jason. It appreciates the characters for what they are, and it appreciates mm. the audience, and doesn't just try and go, "Oh, look at a thing." Yeah. The only other note I'd say it's not directly this episode; it's all of them, but it's, it's a general one. Um. It's very fast-paced, the cutting and the dialogue and it's this and that and that. Yeah. Um, I love that in a TV show and films, and it's such a contrast to the Colour of Magic TV show. Yeah, that it's was... Such, a... it, it's, to me, it is the an, in, antithesis? Antithesis yeah. of what I hate about that kind of 90s shitty adaptation TV that we had to watch for The Colour of Magic. It wasn't 90s, it was 2000s. Well, it fucking looked 90s. <laughs> the long, slow pans and a and lot of long walk and talks. Scenes. Yeah, walk and talks. and Oh, God, I hated that. Can't make, can't make I don't sense. hate it, but I definitely like the pace of this, and I yeah. think it works with the pace of the book. If you think about the fact that, like, when we did the episode in the book, we were saying the first half of the book is 4,000 years and the second half of the book is yeah. two days. Yeah. <laughs> like the pacing and somehow all of that pacing works. And I think they keep up the momentum really well in the episode. If you think momentum, about... Momentum, that's the word. Yeah, yeah, they keep it. Yeah. You think about how many characters have to be introduced just in this first episode and mm-hmm. how much has to be established. Because obviously we briefly meet Adam and the them as well and we see Adam get a dog. Yeah. Yes. Um, I thought the animation on the Hellhound was really good and becoming the very... The little terrier was perfect. Yeah. I think the dog is excellent casting. Yes. Um, and the dog uh, did get a named credit, actually. Uh, dog, comma, England, Ollie. Ollie the dog. Oh, Ollie. And in South Africa, Milo. Oh. Um, 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 what was I saying? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the kind of fast pace of it, I think, particularly probably suits me because of the ADHD thing. It's like the, to grab my attention, it... It needs to keep changing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's why, it's why I don't watch many movies. Yeah, um, and I don't watch that much um, when it comes like feature drama TV because yeah. of that. I don't think everything needs to be like that. Like that, but I think for this yeah. it was uh, perfect. Yeah. yeah, I don't think everything needs to be like that. I, I very much realise that I have a particularly short attention span. So. Yeah, and I don't have a great attention span either, and I struggle with movies and yeah. long, slow walk and talk things. Yeah. Like, I do have to say, as much as I didn't dislike The Colour of Magic as much as you, mm-hmm. if I had had to watch it without having to take a bunch of notes on it, I would have got bored a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. Like, it is quite long. Yeah. But if you think about, like, yeah, the amount of story that's being put into six hours here, mm-hmm. 
how economic it is with the storytelling yeah. and the fact that it still gives itself time to have really nice playful moments yeah and it still has time to put in you know little snippets of Pratchett's writing and the narration and the... oh there's so much of the I mean this is why I like that it's narrated and like we were saying earlier like otherwise it'd just be expositional mm-hmm. um it means that they can cover a lot of ground very quickly yeah yeah okay so yeah so that's episode one mm-hmm. should we move on to episode two so episode two. Sorry, you can't see my thumbs up through a microphone, can you? Yes, let's. Episode two. The book. The book. In this episode. Sorry, let me rustle my notes. I thought Nate had started drumming again, and then I realised it was me playing with my biro. <laughs> Excellent, Francine. Well done. Uh, so in this episode, it is now Thursday. We start with Gabriel popping in to the bookshop to have a chat with Xerophel. Sure. About yeah. the Antichrist. Yes. Uh, as Haster and Liger interrupt Crowley's morning telly to do si- to do similar, mm-hmm. I can use words, we see war summoned by the International Expressman, uh, interrupting some peace accords in the process. Then we flash back to the burning of Agnes Nutter, uh, and we meet both Agnes and Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery Pulsifer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we briefly see young Anathema learning to predict the future with yeah. the prophecies, and we see young Newt. A very nice place. Yeah, very nice place. Terrace and a half. Their family have done well for themselves. Um, Newt knocking out the electrics for the neighbourhood. Then we get adult Newt, who starts a new job, loses a new job, uh, meets Shadwell and joins the Witchfinder army. It looked like a shit job anyway. What a busy day for him. Yeah. Anathema enters the UK and begins hunting the Antichrist. She meets them, who Uh are themselves, about to engage in a bit of witch hunting. Yay. With a tire swing. Aziraphale and Crowley having lost, realised they've lost the Antichrist, travel to Tadfield Manor uh-huh. to try and find him, get caught up in a vicious paintball game. Uh, they learn about the fire that um, destroyed all records. Mm-hmm. Very rude. And then literally bump into Anathema as she's trying to cycle home, give her a lift. And once they've dropped her off, Aziraphale finds the Book of Prophecies in the car and they agree to contact their own agents. Aziraphale, right at the end of the episode... Works out where Adam is. Yes. He has found the Antichrist. Um, and his mug of cocoa goes cold. And can I just say, that's a very nice mug. Oh, the, with the little wing on it? Yeah, throughout the series, I've noticed various accessories I want. Yeah. Um, David Tennant's sunglasses, Xerophel's mug, and Pepper's wellies. Yeah. Are the three main ones. Um, yeah. It's going to be a weird outfit, but I think I can pull it off. Yeah, no, I think you can get away with it. Yeah. I still, like... Little bit of me thinks that Crowley bought Aziraphale that mug. Like he saw it and thought, oh, cute angel mug. <laughs> My God, Joe. <laughs> Calm the fuck down. Sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm now going to go Stop anti. trying to turn them into a weird married couple. <laughs> Mate, all right, I'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Right. It's not me trying to turn them into a weird married couple. <laughs> okay, so what characters, will be, will be. <clears throat> characters we meet in this. We mm-hmm. meet Newton Pulsifer, mm-hmm. played by Jack Whitehall. Jack Whitehall also plays Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery Pulsifer. Yep, God, that's briefly. hard to say. I've got to say, as much as... I can as... see why you call him adultery for sure. <laughs> adultery Pulsifer. Um, it was kind of nice to see Jack Whitehall not doing a posh British accent. Yeah, I know you hate Jack Whitehall, but I... I don't hate Jack Whitehall. I just don't really like Jack Whitehall or get the hype about Jack Whitehall. Is there a hype about Jack Whitehall? Like people, Maybe I just know really basic people because I, I mean, know a lot of people yeah. are like really into his comedy. And I just don't think he's that funny. I think he's funny. I I, I can recognise that the stuff I don't like of his is just for a different audience. Yeah. And let's I mean, be honest, a younger audience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do think he's really funny in Fresh Meat. Yeah, I think he's great in that. I think he's... 
I've, I've enjoyed him on a lot of panel shows. And I think he did really well in this. Um, I thought he was going to be shit and it, he was actually really, really good. I will say, having said, like, you know, I didn't enjoy watch reading about Newt so much in my uh-huh. recent reread. And I think that's more that I've just gotten really bored of bits of narrative around basic white men when there's more interesting people around them. <laughs> uh, I actually didn't dislike Jack Whitehall as him so much in this. And I actually liked his character a bit more in this than I did in the book, I think. Okay. Uh I can see that, yeah. He's, yeah. he's more... I still don't think he's good enough for Anathema. Well, no. He's punching well above his weight, though. Well, yes. I mean, also, she should be with me. But right. you found that... <laughs> you found that note that might explain why. That's for the next episode, okay. Francine. <laughs> Spoilers, sweetie. Sorry, I just turned into... Spoilers, sweetie. <laughs> there are a lot of Doctor Who references in this, actually. Yeah. Um, we're talking about Anathema. Adria Arjona? Side note. Our friend Kara. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched Doctor Who for ages, and I've seen her more recently, and now in my head she is River Song. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's fair. That's quite weird. <laughs> she does do a very good River Song cosplay. Yeah. Actually, she also did a really good Aziraphale cosplay for Comic Con oh, last year. I was going to say, for Halloween, do you want to do an Aziraphale currently? For yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Who cool. do you want to be? I don't know. I can be like, either, so I'll let you pick. I mean, I could also be either, like, body type wise, you're a bit more Crowley, but I can do multicolored hair. Um, I might have short hair. Shall we see what length our hair is? Yeah, then? let's basically see what our haircuts are at the time and then yeah. choose because either of us could do either quite happily. Also, I'm pretty sure I can do either out of what's already in my wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> a total side note. <laughs> Planning our Halloween costumes. It's February. <laughs> but we like to be organised. We don't. Oh, God, no, we really don't. We're recording this like two days before it goes out. Have fun editing. Yeah, no, I will. We should. Oh, yeah, fuck. That's why we wanted to stick to the time limit. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah, so we meet you. I, I actually think Jack Whitehall's really quite good in this. Yes, no. Okay, good. And I'm glad we agree because I was going to defend him. Yeah. He's not playing full posh boy the way he does in stuff like Fresh Meat. No, that's it. I think usually he's exaggerating his own personality a lot for these things. Yeah. And then it's quite nice to see him dial it back instead. Yeah, he's very he's quite softened and mm. uh, sort of stuttery and shy in this. Yeah. The way I would pitch in you. I also think, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not into him, but he's a, maybe a little bit too handsome for the part. Yeah, and I wouldn't have said that before I saw him in this. Yeah. Because... Like, I don't think of him as particularly yeah. handsome, but for Newt, he's quite handsome. Yeah, yeah. But I thought he was but great. Anathema is supermodel pretty. Uh, yeah, Anathema is. So, uh, like I said, Adria Arjona plays Anathema. I haven't really seen her in anything else. No, I'd never heard of her. Um, and I... she's fucking gorgeous. God, she's ridiculously oh beautiful. Yeah. What the hell? Like Those freckles? Like... I could just look at her. Yeah. Um... It's like someone came along and just like put those freckles on, like an artist did that. Yeah, yeah. No, her and face. Maybe is... they did. No, I'm pretty sure that's just her face. No, I think that's just her face. Yeah. God, she's so pretty. Um, but if you think about how Anathema's <laughs> described in the book, possibly a bit too pretty. Yeah, but I mean, but uh, like it's, it's TV. TV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, re- I thought she was also really charming. I like that. She could have easily. They could have easily made her very yogurt weavery, and they didn't. <laughs> No, they made her very sophisticated. Uh, yeah, sophisticated and like this kind of intense, hyperactive believing it all instead of the kind of laid back yoga weavery, too many bangles. Yeah, she could have easily been Hilda Goatfinder mm. level as, of jewelry. Yeah, like, about the whales. Yeah. So right, sorry, whales, nuclear power stations, <laughs> yeah. the Antichrist, 
Um, Let me bring up my spreadsheet. (laughs) And I like that they kind of acknowledge the whole background history of the device family. Like, of course, they have lots of money and they live in a big mansion. Yeah. Because how would you not if you had access to all of that about the future? And I like that her mum is like South American, I think it sounds like. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, she, I mean, she's got... Or Italian, slightly... maybe. I'm bad with accents. No, I think she's meant to be, like, Hispanic and I think yeah. possibly sort of Puerto Rico type uh, okay. area. Yeah, yeah. I didn't look up where the actress is actually from. Yeah. Which... I like that the, it just kind of assumes, uh, not assumes, like, implies that the family has kind of ended up going all around the world over the generations and now comes back to England. Yeah. There's a nice sort of... I mean, I like the fact in general throughout the series the casting is fairly racially blind and gender blind. Yeah. There's some, like, gender specific stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like it would have been weird if Adam hadn't been a boy because he's yeah. written as this kind of scabby need boy. And yeah. Aziraphale and Crowley written the way they are. If you've made one a different gender, then... Then the romance thing would have yeah. been twee. It would have been ridiculous. But yeah, I like a bit of racially blind and gender blind yeah. casting. Especially things like, you know, women playing Beelzebub and the angels being the way they yeah. are. Yeah, pollution being... Um, non-binary. non-binary. Yeah, yeah. would have been nice if they cast a non-binary actor, but we can't have everything. Oh, is she not? No. Anyway, screw gender. Giving that up. That's what we said. Uh, Sergeant Shadwell. Sergeant Shadwell played by Michael Michael McKean, which I can't slur my way through, unfortunately. Yeah, you can't really slur slur the word Michael McKean words with his mad... I I like that he kind of just sounded Scottish and didn't have the accent careening around quite as much as it's described in the book because I just don't think you could bring that to life. It would be difficult, especially for an American who I think did marvellously with his I thought he did brilliantly... Um, that sounded very patronising from me I'm sorry but um, no, he's he a very good actor in, in a lot of things so I can yeah and I thought Jack he was thinks, great Jack says yeah. he's seen him in a lot of stuff where he does play British parts and yeah. so he, he clearly is just very comfortable with that he's got a very his, if you have you heard him speaking you know as an American uh, yeah he's in like short circuit too yeah that, yeah he's yeah. got a very sus- he's got a very soft accent he doesn't yeah. have like that harsh brash accent but he can yeah yeah but I think if you hear him yeah. speaking in like interviews and stuff, he doesn't sound like American. Ah, he's just very vocally talented. He's very good. I I love the way Shadwell's done in this, yeah. especially his sort of like grubby Mac and his yeah. sugars and his standing there preaching with a whiteboard. The the kind of like grim expressions he does on his face. Sorry mm. to draw the parallel again. Is I feel like what a lot of people in the Color of Magic were trying to do and failed. And so we're like, just gurning J- J- instead. Yeah, yeah. D- David Jason's gurning. This is Dial what... it back to a good actor, and mm. you've got um, what's his chops, Michael McKean doing Shadwell. Yeah. Um, and then who's next? Adam Tracy and who's Miranda that? Richardson. You put oh one, two, three, four, five exclamation marks. I really sure sign me. of an what is it? An un- unhinged mind or an something? Unhinged mind. <laughs> I just really fucking love Miranda Richardson, and yeah. I think again, we, I keep just saying, oh, this is good casting. This person's mm-hmm. perfect, but she really is. Um, Everything about how she plays Madame Tracy, uh, when she opens the door to Newt and she delivers what could have been a big comedy moment really, really subtly. Mm-hmm. She's sort of saying, oh, well, I don't do this. And if it's intimate discipline you wanted, I'll have to... Have a... And she sounds quite tired. Yeah, yeah. And she's not, and, and a different actor could have played that really, really brash comedy. Yeah. Very chatty and in your face. And she doesn't. She's really, really mellow and sweet with her. 
yeah. with everything she does. And I and it's I think it's again like I was saying in the book, this is a fairly sympathetic portrayal of a sex yeah. worker. The fact that she has sex is not really played for laughs. No, no. and I think the show does that really well as no. well. It's quite amusing to think of somebody as a psychic slash sex worker. Just imagining trying to fit two freelance roles like that in your day. Oh my god! I mean, you know more about trying to juggle multiple free- freelance roles than I do. Yeah. But I mean, at least mine are all on the laptop. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> if that, if you've got to get your crystal ball and your flogger and you don't yeah. want to mix them up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all throwing a crystal ball. We something. all have that days where we get, we get the lube mixed up with the ectoplasm. <laughs> I don't think we all have those days, Francie. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I think that's, that's something for Tumblr. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm really happy to see Madame Tracy here and I'm going to talk about her a bit more in the next episode as well because there are some amazing acting moments. There. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, yeah, we'll do her in that. Uh, we get the International Express driver, who is really, really not how I pictured, but I really like the guy doing it. Yeah, I think he did well. I think... Because I, I, I thought of it as a little old bloke, you yeah. know, like really short, bald glasses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they probably... I think they probably made him younger so they could do like the young family at home thing. Maybe. Well, they, yeah. I mean, he's not young, but he is younger yeah. than I pitched him. Well, the, the yeah, guy they, playing they, him. Or something? I don't yeah, know. yeah. The guy playing him, I can't remember what it is, but he was in something with uh, the Someone. Douglas McKinnon okay. who directed all of this. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, he was in something with him and they, I think they, he, he's like he's got the same name as the character he played in that show. I can't remember what it is. It's Nightfall or something. Um, I should have written that down, really. Mm-hmm. I'm so good at research. Simon Merrills is the guy playing him. But I think he does it really well. He's still got the nice, friendly chattiness to him. Yeah. And he's got that sort of slightly charming and handsome in a, like, yeah. I wouldn't go there, but like, oh, that's nice. I would enjoy being delivered a package by him. Yeah. Because he'd probably be quite nice and yeah. not judge me on the fact I've answered the door at 2pm in my dressing gown. I do worry what the postman think of me. Oh, God. Oh, crap. I'm getting a package delivered today. Hopefully Ben's gone home. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, we meet all of them. I'm not going to go through all of the actors, um, but Sam Taylor Buck playing Adam, I think, did an amazing job in this. I think all the kids did. All the um, kids were great. To me, special shout out to Wensleydale, though. He was my favourite. Oh, really? Actually, this hurts quite a lot. And <laughs> He does do the posh little lines really well. I think he... Yeah, no, I just... Yeah. Possibly, I just love the fucking character, but yeah. I do quite like I mean, Adam. Character. Obviously, did very well. It's a much more complex character, but yeah. I, I just weirdly, I didn't. Down made me smile. Pepper bugged me a little bit in just that some of the kind of feministy jokes, the line readings fell really, really flat. But yeah, I think that's difficult if you're gonna try and make like a ten year old say those things. It's yeah. always gonna it, it to the point where like it sounds like she's reciting. It does sound very much like she's... Which like is this... possibly the joke. But, well, yeah. But then I feel like she wasn't playing it that way. And There were a couple of... I did like... When she's sort of ranting about the bike and stuff, especially in... Yeah, that was good. At the end of episode one. Yeah. And I quite like that she's moaning about her having a girl's bike with a basket. And then the next time you see them riding their bikes, Adam's bike is one that has a basket. Yeah. And, like, that's probably just a random set dressing thing. But yeah. I like the thought of them having a conversation where Pepper's like, women's rights, and Adam's like, ooh, but basket. That's yeah. what... <laughs> Because that could very much happen. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's if you look through the scripts, there's twice as many of those feminist jokes in as actually made it into the show. And okay. even the ones that are in get to the point where they feel a bit heavy-handed and cringy. Yeah. I don't think the girl was a bad actor. No, no. It's, I it's, just, think... it's just there's no real way to have a 10-year-old say those lines without yeah. it coming across as heavy-handed. Yeah, it felt really... There's one... Maybe if I... they dial it back so it sounded like it was coming from... A ten like, year old. One, my mum says this is funny because it's reciting what my mum says. Yeah. But then after that, maybe trying to make it like 
you know, actual, sound like it comes from a kid. Yeah, there is. There's one I really hate that I'll talk about in the next episode. Okay. Um, and then we also meet Agnes Nutter, Yay. played by Josie Lawrence, who also voiced her in the radio play. Oh, okay, good. And uh, was so good at it, Neil Gaiman asked her to come back and be in this. Fantastic. And I thought she was brilliant. Yeah, she was She's very good. also someone who I could just quite happily look at for hours. Face, good face. Such an excellent sort of... She's got a very expressive face, but it's it's... You know in the book where it talks about how Anathema would have been described as vivacious... Yeah. I would say she's got that very vivacious face. Yeah, it is. Every bit of it's full of life. Yeah. She is that slightly older woman that I would desperately want to be friends with and know all of her secrets. Yeah. <laughs> but be way too intimidated to, to actually befriend. Yeah, yeah. She reminds me a bit of, um, sorry, not relevant, but she reminds me a bit of our friend Elena. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's got that. that face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought I thought she was great. And um, yeah, bless her cancelling the milk. Yeah. <laughs> But she probably was a witch if she runs for health. Um, so my favourite line reading moment in this whole episode has got to be John Hamm saying, thank you for my pornography. <laughs> I, lo- I just, yeah, I paused that to kind of do an impression of it to Jack. Just like, I love the idea that that's what an angel thinks that human interactions in a shop are like. Yes, I would like to buy something in the back. Pornography. <laughs> And I then comes in with the, mis- the fact that he hands Aziraphale a book and says it's pornography and it's Mrs. Beaton's household management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I really need a copy of. Do you, do you not have one, Francie? Well, no, we've got the current Debrett's Guide up there and I think that would go really nicely next to it. I'd quite like to get a copy of Mrs. Beaton's, actually. I yeah. have spotted vintage ones around, but they tend to go a bit pricey. Well, it, I don't know how vintage I want it because for it to be vintage enough for it to be cool in that context, it's going to be too expensive and fragile for oh, me. Yeah. So I might just get a nice newish version, Fair. you know, eighties, nineties. Um, anyway, uh, so my favourite use of a Queen song in this episode uh-huh. is uh, "Bicycle." Jesus, okay. Sorry, I tried to not actually yell that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even whisper shouting is a uh, is quite fraught. shocking in these headphones. <laughs> but yes, yeah, just bicycle screaming as uh, they driving anathema home. And as she sits awkwardly in the back looking yeah. at Sarah Fell and Crowley looking a little bit confused. I really like how she plays being angry at those two. Um, the kind of intensely... No, I'm not just going to let this go. My, my I, bike. Know, I know my bike didn't have gears. Yeah. <laughs> like all of that. Um, the fact that having been hit by a car and being driven home by a couple of strange men might kind of put off and make some women a bit shaken and make some people a bit shaken yeah. and on edge she's like no i know my bike didn't have kids yeah <laughs> like, like clearly shaken enough to forget her book well she was she had just been hit by a car so yeah well, we'll forget oh, right, we'll also the plot needed that to happen the plot did need that, and agnes nutter therefore yeah, yeah. it would happen good um, old agnes good old agnes right so my azura fell and crowley check-in for this episode uh-huh. is uh Let's talk queer baiting. Right, yeah, so I deliberately didn't look this up. What the fuck is queer baiting? You've said this a few times now. Like... It's, it's really hard to describe, but what I mean in this specific context is shows that have queer coded characters and uh-huh. call it representation without any actual queer representation. Okay. Uh, now, I, and I, like, obviously, I love their relationship in this show yeah and i'm going to probably massively contradict myself by the time we're talking about episode three yeah but very specifically their interaction in this episode and i'm just going to grab uh... <laughs> you can just turn around and get it <laughs> i know but i was <laughs> talking... reaching blindly behind you 
Um, oh my god, I forgot how psycho that book looked. <laughs> um, so many posters. Yeah. So the reason this kind of got me the wrong way a bit here, uh-huh. or in this particular episode more than anything, I re- I do really hate when uh, people are like, oh, it's so queer. It it's queer friendly enough to get queer viewers with still the only relationships that are on screen are heterosexual relationships. But they only had, yeah. No, no. I'm not saying I needed to see Aziraphale and Crowley kissing. I'm not necessarily saying I dislike the way their relationship was built up. Yeah. I'm saying that in this episode, where they play off some of the tension between them, it feels cheap and unearned and like a cynical ploy to get the queer dollar. Right. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do get that. And there is something that bugs me a bit. And the specific scene... I'm. When they go to Tadfield Manor and they both get shot and Aziraphale is complaining about the stain on his jacket. So a couple of different things I'm going to reference for this. Uh-huh. In the book, when Aziraphale gets this stain on his jacket, yeah. um, Crowley suggests he mirac- miracles it away. Oh, yeah. He says, yes, but I'll always know the stain was there, you know, deep down, I mean. And that's it. Yeah. It's not discussed again. Yeah. As far as we And know. it's a funny little thing, like... Yeah. For perfectionists, that's very much the way it is, isn't yeah. it? It's like, yeah. As far as it's we It's showing know, him being type A. Yeah. Now, their relationship is built up a bit more in the series than it is by that point in the book. Uh-huh. So, obviously, it's more of a conversation in the book. Uh, and I've gone less mad with the post-its on this, but they're still a little bit mad. I this think is that is a book. sane amount of post-it notes. Yeah. They're not in order, though. <laughs> oh. In the script book... Crowley says, you could miracle it away. Aziraphale says, yes, but I'd always know the stain was there. Underneath, I mean. The stage direction is, Crowley gestures, the stain vanishes. And Aziraphale says, oh, thank you. Gestures. What happens in the show is David Tennant does a very, very irritatingly charming, leans over his shoulder and blows it off. It is ridiculously flirty. Aziraphale blushes and giggles. (laughs) I mean, I think possibly Michael Sheen just blushed and giggled. (laughs) I would blush and giggle if David Tennant We're both Tennant kind of blushing and giggling now. Yeah, I am blushing and giggling, just thinking about it. Like, And, you know, choices are made to portray something that way. And I'm not saying it's a bad choice. I mean, I like I said, I know Michael Sheen said in interviews that he was playing Aziraphale to be a bit into Crowley. Yeah. I know, ev- I know everyone ships them for really good reason. And the, some of this is just what happens if you have two incredibly charismatic actors with really good chemistry playing this kind of friendship. Yeah. And it is a relationship. And I'm definitely not saying that you need to have actual snogging or sex happen to call something a relationship because God knows that's not the only thing that defines it. Or well, to knows. me, do you know what I was thinking? They, they came across as asexual but romantic. Yeah. Right? I think that's very yeah. much the case. Well... Yeah, um, in but later in the series, yeah, but in this episode, it plays yeah. off some sexual... Especially there's then a scene, like, two minutes later where Crowley has him pushed up against a wall saying, I'm not nice, don't call me nice, and... I, I must... Yeah, both of those moments did stand out to me as weird when I watched it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I totally get what you mean. Yeah. So, but this is my point about queer basing, is it feels... Here it feels cynical. The rest of their relationship throughout the series, and that's what I mean about I'm going to contradict myself in about five minutes, mm-hmm. feels earned and very sweet to watch. And I love where it is and where it gets to, but just yeah. in this episode... It's possible that just, like, oh, well, there yeah. was context that got cut. It's a unfortunate bit of editing. Or just yeah. that it's, it's the way the actors chose to do it and yeah. the way it was directed. And, I, and like I said, I still really like it. Yeah, yeah. 
it didn't spoil the episode or anything. It was just a. Huh. But it can be really frustrating to watch stuff and people be like, "Oh, but this is such a queer show," and it's like, "Is it queer?" Or if they just put some sexual tension between in between two people of the same gender because they know queer people will watch it. It's a bit like people talking about the queerness of Buffy the Vampire Slayer before Willow comes out, and it's like, "Do you mean queerness, or do you just mean Buffy and Faith beating each other up?" Because like, that's not a relationship. But if it's queer people saying this, then what they're getting out of it is the important thing, isn't it? If it's not the show people saying, hey, look at how inclusive we've been, which I don't think they have. No, they haven't. And this isn't like me having yeah. a go at Neil Gaiman. No. But it does... No, I'm, I'm thinking aloud rather than contradicting you. I'm, yeah. Um, it feels like there like if is... Somebody's get, if, if, if people who... If people who need it feel like they're being represented, then, then that's it's still kind a good of thing. The, yeah, yeah, the important bit. And throughout the rest of the series, I just think their relationship is a really good thing and really beautifully yeah, done no, on screen. Is, yeah. But I don't really like this whole section in this episode, and mm-hmm. it it is still grating because it's a bit like, well, yes, but why can't we also just see a normal happy queer couple on screen? Yeah. When you read the script book, did you, was the original whole scene in this because this was in the um, the nunnery, wasn't it? Yeah, this is the convent during the paintball bit. Um, was that originally longer? Because my thought was while I was watching it, I wonder if they left more of the scene in and then cut it weirdly. No, no. that's pretty much it. Oh, okay. Like I said, and the stage direction for the scene is literally Crowley sad gestures. that we missed. Um, uh, oh, Mary Hodge's yeah. backstory. Yeah, that... I understand. Like that, obviously, that was as we've said before. One of Terry Pratchett's wonderful habits is putting in a complete tangent side note, building up a side character's life for no reason at all other than it's good. Well, that was the next thing I was going to talk about, actually. Oh, okay. Sorry, um, I stopped looking at your lovely bit of paper. Oh, uh, God, no, it's fine. So, yeah, so talking about Mary Hodges, the whole office team building thing. Yeah. A, Ben Wilbond is perfect casting here. He's the Nigel Tompkins character. So we, st- um, so we start with Newt getting this new job. Yeah. And he's in this office yeah. and they're talking about a team building exercise mm-hmm. and then he gets fired and then... That's the team building exercise. Yeah, that's not tied in in the book, is it? No, it's not. But this is... Um, I really, really love... Really, really good comedy where they just yeah. cram in extra jokes where they're... Oh, there's a corner. Yeah. And it's like, they, you did not need to connect these two events, but they managed to cram in an extra bit of funny anyway. Yeah. And it's a bit like the way Terry Pratchett puts these yeah. backstories in. In the book, I'd say the corresponding shoved-in jokes bit are the... Um, all of the firms called Incorporated Brackets Incorporated or whatever. Yes. Yeah. But so I really love that they brought this in. But we did lose Mary Hodge's backstory and I thought it was Holdings. kind of... In- yeah. <laughs> I thought it was kind of interesting because it was a lot easier to cram in something small and funny like having a very good... Ben Wilbond, who plays Nigel Tompkins, he's from the group that do like horrible histories and then they've done oh, ghosts okay. and uh, they did a really funny one as Victorian surgeons as well. Sure. Like they're a really good group of comedy actors and he's really funny. Um, so I was a bit just excited to see him. Can I say I saw the trailer for the Horrible Histories movie and it looks shite. Oh, it's not good. It's okay. not the group of people who kind of rebooted the TV series. Okay, I was going to say, because I know you like the TV series. And I really like the TV series. with like the t- kind of historical portrayal that you would enjoy. So the TV series, when it sort of started up again, was this very particular group of comedy actors and they've since gone on. They made oh. Bill, which was like a comedy Shakespeare film. And mm. then they did a weird series called Yonderland that's very funny. Mm. Um, and they've got a series on the BBC now called Ghosts, but it tends to be this group of people working together. Ben Wilbond okay. is one of them. Okay. Um, the Horrible History mo- Histories movie is not that team. It's actually all right, though. It's yeah. a bit funny. Oh, it wasn't like Laugh want it to Out be Loud. Funny. I wanted to like the Horrible Histories books. I loved them. And oh, it's not they like... They taught me actual history. It's got good, good bits of actual history, but it does not make me belly laugh. All right. 
the way that horrible histories like the early episodes of the show do. Okay. Um, we will link to this in yeah. the show notes. Anyway, sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think it's interesting that where you could cram in the extra bit of comedy in the show was to use a funny actor and tie those two office mm. things together. Mm-hmm. The book, the extra comedy, was giving Mary Hodges a backstory and you couldn't really do that in the show because this needed didn't need much on screen to cram in this extra joke of having using that. Yeah, as about and it would have seconds. been you'd have needed the narration for the exposition, and it would have been weird having the voice of God talk about Mary Hodges' backstory. Yeah. And it would have been a good solid three four minute bit. Yeah, it would have taken too long. Yeah, to not be funny enough. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, so I can completely see why they cut that. But I thought it was interesting. Um, uh, but I, I couldn't see how you could really do her backstory justice on screen without yeah, it dragging fair. yeah yeah so i thought that was cool um yeah we see crowley's flat in this episode for the first time it's so not like how i pictured it i can't see it in my head now um, it's really dark yes there it is yeah 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 yeah. um and it's not described like that in the script book it's designed described as like white and i always pictured it pictured it as very black and white not not gray at all and modern and sleek and uh i was imagining it like um oh you know um, you know anchorman the way he describes his apartment oh I've met that many rich leather-bound books and my apartment smells like a rich mahogany oh see for like... me to me that's all an aziraphale thing there's like two versions of that though there's yeah. the american psycho version which is what i was imagining oh right yeah and there's the nice Sorry, now I'm going to sound like really pretty. Now the, then there's the nice, nice English version. <laughs> the English psycho version yeah. of the upper class. But I did always picture Crowley's flat as written by Bright Easton Ellis. Like it is that uh-huh. kind of weird, yeah. modern, slightly too modern, yeah. slightly too clean. Stuff that shouldn't be made of glass is made of glass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's an odd sculpture somewhere. And instead what he's you got is tell, like... like higher cleaning people. Yeah. <laughs> Dark grey cement, house plants and a big red chair. And I don't know. I think there was the most jarring thing for me of differences from the book is yeah. how Crowley's flat's decorated. Oh, I literally, yeah, I guess it's just literally the set designer got a different interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what it was the... in it so briefly, I didn't care. There's a couple of like big scenes in it, though. Um, the whole, like, later on, we've got everything with the holy water and uh, him deciding where to go. I'm trying to be kind yeah. of vague because yeah. I can't remember what's in which episode, so if, I'm not sure if I'm spoiling yeah. anything. Um. Was this the one where he was doing the plants? Yeah. We see him yell at the plants, which I yeah, thought Yeah, that he was did. weird to me because it's the only time I see him be mean in the whole thing. Yeah, he's that not really him, mean. That and him, like, holding Aziraphale against the wall which were really jarring to me because they're just him Crowley's being aggressive. Crowley's not very mean. Yeah. yeah. I th- it's kind of almost jarring in the book because you don't really see Crowley being... For a demon, you don't really see him being particularly nasty. No. Apart from to the house plants. Yeah. And that feels like... Almost like it's from a different draft when he was meant to be more of a villain. Yeah. Because he's not at any point a villain. Like you were always meant to root for Crowley. You were never meant to not want things to come out well for Crowley. He's never written really. Yeah, I I think the bit in the book honestly is because it's funny. Oh no, the bit yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's less jarring in the book. It's funny and because you're not watching it, it doesn't feel weird that he's being mean to plants. Whereas here, like they're trembling. (laughs) (laughs) I did like the trembling plants though. (laughs) Yeah, again, it's funny. It's funny. It was just jarring. Yeah, um, and we yeah the conversation. this is near the end of the episode uh, where the them, so Adam, Pepper, Brian yeah. and Wensleydale are all outside the shop eating ice cream. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as you see him has, have the conversation, we get just a little bit of narration introducing each one. Yeah. This is such a perfectly way to introduce three characters really rapidly on screen. Yeah. 
because as well as the narration that gives their little bit of backstory which keeps their backstory from the book and is very good because they all have really good backstories in the book just the way they eat their ice creams tells you everything you need to know about their character okay the way Wensleydale is eating his very fastidiously and Brian's face is covered in (laughs) chocolate and Pepper is almost too busy talking to eat it yeah yeah and Adam is kind of sat back and relaxed and enjoying watching them all chat yeah the king overseeing the yeah and it's it's two minutes on screen plus Mm -hmm. the little bits of narration and little flashes off like you get the little footage of Pippin Galadriel Moonchild's the sheep farm that she was growing yeah, up yeah. on before her mother came back and um you get wensley dale in a family photo he's so sweet and the him. only thing that's stopping him from becoming an accountant is time yeah oh um so I that, love wensley dale. he's so sweet <laughs> yeah but using the ice cream just to show mm. everything you need to know about a character i thought that was a really clever bit yeah. of filming uh related pop quiz how many flavors of ice cream can you name go vanilla chocolate strawberry raspberry ripple Bubblegum, uh, Ben and Jerry's Cookie Dough, Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia, Ben and Jerry's Snafu, <laughs> Fish Food, uh, Mint, Mint Chocolate, uh, Lemon Sorbet, Mango. Mm-hmm. I'll, um, I'll allow it. Oh, that really good green and black starch chocolate one. No, can I stop now? Because yeah, I'm really no, hungry. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you went on for longer than I thought. Well yeah. done, well done. How many did they say America had? 36. Yeah. I believe that we could get to 36 with some effort under list i've been to ben and jerry's factory they had at least 36 yeah but again is it things being mixed up what do you count as a flavor of ice cream well this is the problem because you say name flavors and mint choc chip to me is a flavor yeah but fish food is a branded flavor yeah do you count branded flavors as separately from flavors i think probably uh oh marmalade Marmalade ice cream. There's a really good little ice cream place uh, right by the coast. You sound so much like a zero fail right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Wells next to the sea and it's by the really, really good fish and chip shop. Oh. Um, and there's a no- really nice little ice cream place and they had the best marmalade ice cream from there and it was so good. Well, we'd better stave off the apocalypse a bit longer because I've never been. Have you never been to Wells next to the sea? No, I've been there. I've oh, been okay. to the ice cream shop. Oh, okay, good. I've been to the fish and chips, but I think we usually went in the evening. Uh, see, we always go in the day get sunburnt i really like wells next to the sea yeah. it's my favorite seaside should we try and go together this summer yes let's go to the seaside yeah sorry right. jack's, jack's gonna have like some days off now oh my god oh, yeah. yeah we can do a little fun little trip yeah take fun, the dog fun little trip <laughs> trip take the dog have a little day yeah. go play in the arcades yeah okay cool awesome right sorry <laughs> we make a get finished yeah. that was i think that was all i really had for episode three though okay cool um the episode only two. other note i've got is um do you know, I kind of, I should really be more detailed in my notes. Um, I've got a cult versus ethereal. Who's saying that ethereal, not a cult? Is it the aim, Aziraphale? Yeah, so Crowley refers to himself and Aziraphale as a cult beings, and Aziraphale is very offended. I'm not a cult, I'm an yeah. angel. Angels yeah. are ethereal. Yeah, what do you reckon? Because I can see what it is, like in the tone. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Aziraphale is like always played. Um, Throughout the six episodes, he's played as really, like, torn between these conflicting loyalties and yeah. who he should be and who he really is. Like, he should be an angel. Mm-hmm. Who he is is mates with Crowley, mm-hmm. who is meant to be his opposite. Yeah. And every time Crowley more directly references the fact that they are more similar than different, he yeah. feels like he has to protest it. Yeah. And it's almost like uh, the angel doth protest too much. Okay, cool. It's like the freedom fighter versus terrorist. Yeah. But a cult versus ethereal. Yeah. And I didn't actually look up the definitions, which I should have done. Uh, you've got your phone, could you? Well, a cult is of cultishness and ethereal is floaty. I, I made that up. Yeah, 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 I can tell. 
<laughs> Google hold music. Google hold music. Ding. Ooh, the creaky table is a really good foley for the creaky door. You can use that. Yeah, I'm really excited. All right, sorry. <laughs> so a cult. <laughs> sorry. Oh man, this blanket smells like dog. Uh. Mystical, supernatural, or magical powers, and has its origins in Latin, salare, as in to hide, which goes to oculare, conceal, uh, secrete, covered over, becomes a cult in the late 15th century. Mm-hmm. Ethereal comes from Greek, mm-hmm. e- ether, uh-huh. uh, extremely delicate and light in a way that seems not to be of this world, ah. heavenly or spiritual. <laughs> like so they're it. not yeah, direct yeah. opposites because they have uh, completely different origins. But they do have very different tones. Yes. So that is episode two. Yeah. Should we talk about episode three? Uh, Yeah. uh, um, I was just about to say what happened in episode three, but you're probably going to tell me. Yes, I thought I might summarise it. (laughs) I mean, this is the big one. This is everyone I think really pointed to as, oh, isn't Good Omens good? Uh Uh-huh. Why is that? Well, I think it's got something to do with a 25-minute soft open that shows the entire history of Aziraphale and Crowley. I love it so much. Oh, me too. It's so good. I did um, uh, notes in the script book for this one which is that uh, Neil Gaiman said as he was writing, he suddenly realised there really wasn't anything for them to do in the middle. Mm. Um, They sort of had this weird... But they obviously needed to use them because they've made them so much more the main character and you've got these really good actors, so what do we do? So they put in a 25-minute soft open with the entirety, entire history of Aziraphale and Crowley, which is also one of the bigger budget drains on the series. Which was your favourite outfit? Oh, shall I summarise Oh it? yeah, summarise yeah. first and then I'll, then I'll make you so, talk about fashion. <laughs> in episode three, we have a 25 minute soft open that takes us from th- 4004 BC to 3004 BC in ancient Mesopotamia mm-hmm. with uh, Noah's Ark, 33 AD in the Crucifixion, ancient Rome, 41 AD, uh-huh. 337 AD in Britain with the Knights of the Round Table, 1601 AD uh, with Shakespeare at the Pogloib. <laughs> Sorry, I just really want to put that Call in. Call back. <laughs> 1793 uh, in revolutionary France. 1861 London. 1941 World War Two Blitz London. 1967 Soho in the swinging 60s. Terrible haircuts. Oh my God, I love the haircuts. <laughs> After the soft open, we see Anathema having a tantrum about her loft book and Adam comforting her. She gives him some oh, interesting magazines. Mm-hmm. It's Friday at this God, point. The tone of voice he said that in was a little... Oh, yeah, that sounded a bit dirty than it needed to. Uh, so it's Friday at this point. Uh-huh. Uh, Crowley meets up with Shadwell. Interesting side note, they meet up in a greasy spoon calf. There's something playing on the TV in the background. And it's Witchfinder General. With Vincent Price. Yes, Jack pointed that out to me. Yep, that made me happy. Because Jack watches movies. Well, I've seen that one. Yeah, Have I you know. not seen I, I, Witchfinder General? No, I haven't fucking seen it, Joe. Jesus. Stop looking surprised every it's time I It's to do with local history. A... Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course it would be. All right, well, I will watch that. Okay. Um... Aziraphale meets up with the angels who are getting a bit suspicious of him trying to prevent the apocalypse. Mm. Uh, Aziraphale is oblivious to that. Yeah. Anathema meets R.P. Tyler, who is only credited up until like the last episode as Tadfield Neighbourhood Watch. Oh. Um, Newt brings up Tadfield's optimal microclimate to Shadwell. Shadwell decides to call it, send him there after getting a call from Aziraphale about Adam mm-hmm. Young at Fort Hookback Wood, because at mm-hmm. the end of episode two, Aziraphale worked out who the Antichrist was. Yeah. Famine receives his scales. Adam is... Famine's fucking gorgeous, by the way. Oh, right. Adam... God, I sound like just... Oh, God, we're so... pervert through this entire thing. Usually I'm a proper prude through these episodes, but I'm afraid this This, show is just very attractive. Yeah, no, everyone's really beautiful. Yeah. 
bless Adam tries to tell his parents about uh, all of the new exciting things yeah. he's read in the magazines and they ignore him and send him to bed so he uh, has a sherbet lemon and a power station loses all of its nuclear material yes and we end the episode at the bandstand and a fight between Aziraphale and Crowley which by the way it's not really worth mentioning later but what a shit place for a rendezvous yeah, like well, a like, secret rendezvous this empty bandstand a nowhere to sit b exposed you're very sides. obvious the on, obviously the only people around when you yeah. are it was a bad rendezvous choice yeah. right sorry what was the question oh which was my favorite outfit uh yeah like your favorite time period aesthetically oh difficult very difficult but i think i'm gonna have to go with shakespearean because i've got a thing about like tudor era stuff in general have you? I like a man in a doublet and hose. Yeah. I mean, I like like Tudor. I like I, I'm really into Tudor history, and I'm a big Shakespeare geek, and I ah, really that's like the globe. Where it comes so, from, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was definitely part of it. What about you? <sighs> oh, I will say honorable mention to World War Two because ooh, the suits. Yeah, that's. I think for me, it was between Revolutionary France and World War Two. So I think World War Two. I really liked Crowley's hair in the Revolutionary France bit. Yeah, yeah the ringlets. I like the. It makes me wish we'd had that Regency era scene. Yeah. Because that would have been in this bit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Flood bit. Oh, the Noah bit. Yeah. Um, when he says he's just just drowning the locals. Oh, yeah. I and thought that was, was really like, good. The Native Americans kind of a, haven't pissed him off. And... Yeah. I, I think it was just a good uh, reference, I guess, to the fact that, um, you know, people have worked out that there was a flood around that time in that part of the world. But obviously... People who didn't know about other parts of the world might have just assumed the whole fucking world was underwater because yeah. everything was, everything's think, underwater. <laughs> yeah, and there's a really clever acknowledgement that it's mm-hmm. it's a part of that world's real history as yeah. well as the biblical history. Yeah. Also, I really like the bit about one of the unicorns running away. Yeah, sorry, right, still got one. And um, like I'm going to talk about this more as we talk about this episode, but Crowley's reaction to the fact that the ch- kids are going to drown too. Yeah, and the moral standards that, that Crowley kids. and his, yeah, <laughs> the moral standards that Crowley and Aziraphale have are really quite interesting. Yeah, and a lot of Crowleys are more closely aligned with human. Mm-hmm. I I think Aziraphales are. Deep by the down. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I have a whole bit. That for I suppose next, actually that would make more sense. This is why Crowley has been damned already because he questioned. Yeah. Yeah. The the whole and idea. Is still quite close to the beginning? Yeah. So, okay. So this is a whole thing in Catholicism, or when I, what I was taught growing up is that hell was not a place of fire and brimstone and torture. It uh-huh. was a place where you were fully cognizant of God's love but unable to receive it, and you only go to hell rather than purgatory if you fully reject God's love in all forms. So it's this idea of... That's the only unforgivable sin, right? Yeah. Uh, So this idea of Crowley is damned because he he questioned rather than because he is bad. Yeah. Uh, That I think is quite... Like, the whole question of morality and humanity, I I generally find quite interesting. I like it within the context of this really kind of silly TV show as well. Yeah, yeah. And in the book. Um, So yeah, so characters and casting... Some amazing cameo bits in this. Go on. Uh, we've got three of the League of Gentlemen, which yes. is an amazing town. And when people ask me what my hometown is like, I sort of explain it's a bit Royston Vasey. <laughs> Meets Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls. Yeah. 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 We've got a Taylor Dosey. Uh So Reese Shearsmith as Shakespeare, uh, and then Mark Gassis and Steve Pemberton as Nazis in the Blitz scene. And oh, I mean, God, I love Mark Gassis. <laughs> he plays creepy so well and he plays creepy German so well. He played him for a sucker. <laughs> I am played for suckers. You are played for suckers. He, she, is, is played for suckers. Hmm. <laughs> He's very funny. I like. Oh, that came out bad. 
I can't do a joke. I can't do a good German accent. <laughs> Not like Mark Assis can. They do actually both speak fluent German. Ah, that was interested yeah, to read. They are actually proper German accents, so that makes sense. Yeah. Rather than uh, LOLO German accents. Yeah, they weren't. They, I think that scene was generally done very well. Yeah. And yeah, as yeah, far yeah. as cameos that happen like throughout the series, this is some of my favourites because I really love League of Gentlemen. Yeah. And them as comedy writers. And Mark Gassis was also in Sherlock. Oh, yeah. He plays Mycroft. And obviously worked on Sherlock and directed it. Mm-hmm. And he's been in Doctor Who. And he, mm. he's, he's really interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, there was uh, Jay Rayner, who hosts Kitchen Cabinet, which we were talking about last week, uh-huh. has a podcast where he just takes someone interesting out to lunch. Oh. And he did a Mark Gassis episode. And he like grew up across the road from an insane asylum, mm. which explains a whole bunch. And just generally had a very interesting life. And, and so he eventually became a very successful writer and actor. Yeah, that does explain a lot. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, um, I think we get a lot more stuff with the other angels than Gabriel here, all mm-hmm. of which are really well done and really well cast. You've got uh, Sandalfon, who's sort of he he's the one who in episode two when Gabriel turns up to buy his pornography, he's the one kind oh, of with he's got Gabriel. the teeth. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's that guy in the office, isn't yeah. he? Who like I don't know just stands a bit too close to you near the filing cabinets every now and then. Yeah. And he's just a bit gross. Yeah, he comes across as oily. And he's the one who says, uh, has some wonderful line readings of quotes from uh, favourite things later on. And yeah, this is another musically quotes. It's uh, something Rogerson yeah. Hammerstein. Uh, Angel Michael played by Dune Mach- Maki-chan. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but I love her. She's in Plebs. Uh-huh. Um, which have you seen Plebs? No. Oh, very funny. You should watch Plebs. It's a bit like in between a set in ancient Rome. Okay, that sounds like something I wouldn't like, but okay, I'll give it a try if you think it's good. Yeah. It is. It is. You've never led me astray yet, so it's very <laughs> Apart well acted. With the color of magic, it's which very is a well pretty acted. Big black mark on your record, but I mean, I never actually said it was good. I just said we should do an episode on it. You said you didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. <laughs> it's got Sean Astin in it. All right, all I right. like Sean Astin. Okay. Okay. Sorry, we're not talking about that. Though. We're talking about good omens. It's fine, I'm not really still angry. <laughs> I like that Angel Michael has a bit of her own sinister double cross here. Mm. Yeah, I was talking about the fact that you've got um, like a Xerophel and Crowley are their opposites, and then you have Gabriel and Beelzebub as their parallels. And yeah. the, Michael's got this parallel with uh, Haster and Liger. Yeah. And they're sort of giving each other a call and they're keeping an eye on the angel. And... Do you know what I love about the angel aesthetics is that they've kind of gone a real nod to the hypocrisy with it because they've all got these simple white robes on and then Michael has like gold leaf on her face yeah. and Sandalfon has gold teeth and they're they're all like that special rich kind of minimalist. Oh yeah, that, that I yeah. really hate. This is yeah. I can afford not to have anything, not yeah. just like I don't have anything. Yeah. Like furniture is <laughs> expensive. Um and Uriel played by Gloria Obiano. And again, I like that there's no like looking at gender when it comes yeah. to the angels. Yeah. Like, it's just, that's who it is. Because why would it? Well, like, I mean, angels... They're, they're meant yeah. to be well above any kind of human biology. If you say. read some bits of the Bible, they're meant to be just big balls of flaming eyes. Yeah, which is... I'm glad they're humanoid. Pretty big hit to the effects budget. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> no, obviously... Um, but they were... Man, people were on drugs a lot when they read the Bible, huh? God, they really were. 
Oh, sorry, I'm having another rustle because there's another uh, fun bit in Neil Gaiman's introduction. Having a, <laughs> having a cheeky rustle. I like that as a, as a yeah. In Neil Gaiman's Anyone introduction need? in the script book, he says, uh, the angels, for example, they weren't in the novel. They were going to be in the next Good Omens book we wrote, only we never wrote it. Mm-hmm. But we knew what they were going to be like. And a version of them showed up in a Good Omens film script Harry and I wrote in 1991. Although that was mostly interesting, if I remember correctly, for the angels using their halos as glowing killer discuses in the British Museum. So I like that the angels are here and I'm really sad that we didn't get them using their halos as killer discuses. Mm. I feel like it, it loses something from Again, that. The, the budget of getting the British Museum. <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. I didn't have to be in the British Museum. I just wanted killer <laughs> glowing discuses. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, in one of the flashbacks, the one to the 60s, mm. this is another thing that wasn't in the book because none of these flashbacks were, but I like no, to think no. they were implied. But this is the main one that's relevant to the plot because it introduces Shadwell. We get young Shadwell. Yeah. Four. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that he's handsome. I was not expecting this TV series to lead me to any kind of fancying Shadwell in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. But young Shadwell, yeah, little bit oh, of a he, flaw he is, there. He's handsome. He is. He's really quite handsome. Um, and you do like directionless revolutionaries. I do like directionless revolutionaries, but he does look like the kind of guy where, like, I'd have a huge crush on, but also would never expect him to text me back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I would enjoy following him on Instagram nonetheless. It's a very specific sort of fancying. <laughs> and then, yeah, Sable, again, for use of... Sorry, so Shadwell's played by Scott oh, Arthur. Cranky, you just got much louder there. Sorry. I'm not very enthusiastic <laughs> about Yusuf Gatewood, who plays Sable. Uh, he's in the originals, I did recognise uh-huh. him, which uh, is a spin-off from The Vampire Diaries. Okay. Because I have really trash TV tastes. <laughs> they're not good shows. They're really not. I love them, but they're not good shows. At some point, get me drunk and get me to explain the plot of the final few seasons of The Vampire Diaries to okay. you. It'll be great. I know I watched some of The Vampire Diaries with you when we lived together. So. Oh, Damon Salvatore. Yeah. <clears throat> King of inappropriately attractive actors. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, he's really hot. I should not Yeah, it, his headshot is, like, not so much while he's, you know... Okay, in, I'm in not into show. him while he's being crucified. Yeah, yeah, but not, not my thing. I did find it quite interesting, though. I looked him up, Adam Bond... Uh-huh. Uh, has played Jesus before in a oh, yeah. documentary about Jesus. Hmm. Well, a, a, about all the different writings and mythology. and uh, So I thought that was quite cool. Yeah. I mean, typecast. Hopefully he gets to do something else <laughs> before he just, like, just plays Jesus. Yeah, you'd get a bit bored of that eventually, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is also the first time we get R.P. Tyler, which, as I said, he's not credited as R.P. Tyler yet. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he It's gets... interesting they've made him um, not from around there. Yeah, he's I Scottish. Forgot. Scottish, was it? Yeah, I can't well, remember. Yeah. I think that might just be because they got Bill Patterson. Yeah. Who's who's really good. He's the dad in Fleabag. Ah, that's it, yeah. Yeah. Um and I'd also and the accent works because it makes him very stern. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like that he's not named in the credits until he's finally introduced, introduced in, I think, episode five. I can't believe you noticed that. <laughs> I... He watched the credits each time. Yeah, because um so you know the the gorgeous theme, like the whole score from David Arnold is really good. Yeah. And he composed the theme as well. So originally, like, and it says about this in the script book, that there was a Buddy Holly song they were going to use that was going to kind of be the theme and they were going to use different instrumental versions of it. Okay. But then David Arnold put that theme together and were like, oh, wait, no, hang on, this is it. And they use it in various ways. Yeah. Um, And it's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, let's see if we can continue with the puppy on my lap. <laughs> um... So there's a different version of the theme over each end credits. Mm -hmm. It's the theme, but in different styles. So like this episode gets like a 60s version from the Soho thing. And there's another one that's like 
really dramatic and orchestral and there's like a weird sort of accordion-y one at one point I think oh okay yeah it's worth watching the end credits just for the different versions of the actual theme I think Amazon skips them for me it does I had to, it took me forever to figure out how to make it not skip them oh okay it was irritating um and then one last like just fun little cameo is in the nuclear reactor scene right at the end where they realize that stuff's gone uh, there's a good comedy character actor called Tony Way who I spotted because it's ooh he was in that episode of Black Books oh right 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 yeah he worked at the chicken place and at the cinema well done um, but it was I, it, I'd never looked up the actor before so I'm glad I now have written down that that is Tony Way who, Tony Way who pops up as just little bit parts in lots of British comedy character actor yeah um, so I liked that cool uh, my favourite line reading of this episode was uh, when they're watching um, Jesus get crucified mm-hmm and Crowley says, I showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Xerophile says, why? And Crowley says, he's a carpenter from Galilee. His travel opportunities are limited. <laughs> and it's like that as a reference to Jesus being tempted in the desert for 40 yeah. days and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the yeah. idea was that these the devil was showing up and showing him all the wonders of the world to try and tempt him. Yeah. And what thought, was he trying to tempt him into exactly? Well, um, abandoning his father and... Oh, right. As yeah. in God, not the... Yeah. His stepdad, the carpenter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, abandoning the path of goodness. Because, because you know, there's uh, there's parallels between the Antichrist thing and the Jesus story. And yeah. That he uh, had to Hence make a choice. the Antichrist. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, no, sorry, I didn't think about how stupid that was until I said it out loud. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fair. I, yeah. I didn't mean that in a you're being stupid way. It was a slight moment but, of realisation yeah. for me. But they're both messiahs and they both uh-huh. have to make a choice. And obviously Adam's choice is to, is to be human. Mm-hmm. And in Jesus's choice, it was to be slightly more than human and yeah. very good. Oh, so, ever so good. Um, but I love the idea of this demon tempting him and showing him the wonders of the world. I wasn't really trying to tempt him. It's just, oh, yeah. he's not going to get a lot, is he? So he might as yeah. well have this. Yeah. Like, that's all I can give him. Yeah. That's nice. He's going... Uh, but there was uh, the other line that follows on from that very quickly is um, what is it? What is it he said that's got everyone so riled up? Be kind to each other, mm. and you can see a little moment of doubt in Aziraphale's eyes there. Yeah, and it's a doubt of doubting humanity. It, should I be trying yeah. to be good for these people? Because and yeah, and, and then Crowley's like, oh yeah, no, that'll do it every time. Yeah, so um, he's realised that already. Yeah, Crowley gets cynical <laughs> a lot faster. Obviously, the biggest change made from the book in this episode is putting in this whole Aziraphale and yeah, Crowley yeah. backstory, which I love. Yeah, that's um, really good. And it reverses my position from Sorry. the previous episode. And like uh-huh. I was saying, I dislike the whole queer baitiness purely in the previous episode because it felt so unearned. Yeah. And watching the relationship develop here, especially when you have 100 years where they're not talking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because they get into a fight over the holy water. Yeah. And then Crowley turning up to save him and that sort of little uh, little conversation about Crowley's name, which is, oh, I've changed it. Anthony J. Crowley. J? Yeah. What's the J for? And he does he does a very good shrug. A, non- he, he a does whole a very, body shrug. A, fo- a faux nonchalant whole body shrug while he's <laughs> yeah. dancing on hot sand. Yeah. Um, so he's so good. Just the physical comedy, it really is. He's he's such a good physical comedy act, character. Yeah. But now the, my... Uh, that the interest in their relationship feels earned because we've watched it develop mm. from co-workers to friends to... Yeah, so chronologically, the other thing would have technically been earned, but us as the viewers have not seen it being earned, and so it was weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it just felt really... Like I said, 
it it felt attention grabby whereas this just feels like watching a really yeah. sweet natural progression and yeah. it makes me very happy and crowley working on her highly ground for azarafella is sort of adorable yeah. and even if you even if you don't want to read it as romantic interest it's lovely seeing a friendship yeah develop like that but there is a there is a moment and the score does so much work yeah i know it. i mean if you changed the music you can definitely read it however you wanted but the fucking score yeah the moment after the church blows up uh-huh. where crowley reveals that he did a little miracle and saved the books for aziraphale and there's a moment of michael sheen just looking while this music swells in Have the you background. Have anybody adore anybody so much as Michael Sheen? I and adore just, I mean, David Tennant. <laughs> that's my face looking at Michael Sheen. I yeah. adore him so much, especially in this. He's so sweet. Yeah. I think that's good. it, isn't it? It's the, the innocence of the adoration. Yeah. And the every time Crowley sort of does something lovely for him, mm. he is surprised by it. Yeah. Almost in a he doesn't expect it because he doesn't feel like he is deserving of that sort of... He's never expected someone to think of him like that because heaven has not necessarily thought of him like that. And he's the one who gives. Yeah, and he, he's because the angel. he's a giver. He does things, yeah. Yeah, so when someone does something for him, it's yeah. beautiful. Um, and the, the way the music's used in the bandstand bit as well. Um, the slow build-up to the acquisition of the holy water is really good. Um, he, yeah. Because it becomes such a big plot point, but we never really think it's, it's really thrown away in the book that just Al oh, Crowley's got some holy water. It's like it, it's a lot for him to have that thing, yeah, that could, yeah. especially for an immortal being like the one thing that could destroy him. Yeah, it's like a vampire go- trying really hard to get a wooden stake, some sunlight, and a bit of garlic. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was something else. The oh the the line in the car after Aziraphale. Fast for me, Crowley. Yeah. After he's given him the holy water. And Crowley's like looking like slightly nonplussed and upset. Yeah. Because they've almost because if you think that's only twenty five years after the Blitz thing. Yeah. It's so weird to think of the sixties as so close to the forties. I don't know why. But it is that's only twenty five years. It's Oh, there was a huge sea change in culture, that's why it's weird. Yeah. 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 But yeah, to kind of shift the focus from having that build up between them to what happens at the end of the episode where they have the fight in the bandstand. Sorry, the puppy wiggling away sounds very <laughs> on the headphones. Um, so to see that relationship build up and get to the point of you go too fast for me, Crowley, and yeah. then to come to modern day and to come to the bandstand. And... What are they arguing about in the bandstand? Well, so Aziraphale hasn't told Crowley that he knows where the Antichrist is. Yeah, because so he's, he's just still... been acting weird. Yeah, so he's still got these split loyalties between heaven and hell. Crowley yeah. has given up on averting the apocalypse and wants to go. Yeah. And wants Aziraphale to abandon his loyalty to heaven and come with him. Yeah. And it is this huge fight of, um, you know, Crowley saying things like, there's no heaven and hell, there's no sides, there's us against yeah. everything else. And and Aziraphale sort of saying, doesn't no, want not, to believe that. <laughs> I don't even like you. Yeah. yeah. And he's sort of like lying to himself, obviously. Yeah. And the totally. way, <laughs> the way the score is built up there, and to the point where, to the point where Aziraphale has to reject Crowley. Yeah. And you can see like David Tennant's face there. The way he, his sort of very brief kicked puppy moment before he yeah. storms off. It is. It's like that bit where you have to in whatever movie it is where they're yelling at the animal to go back in the woods. No, go away. Yeah. No, it's... we don't want you here. And it's. I. I mean. I. I think Aziraphale's story is kind of the most interesting and resonant for me throughout the series uh-huh. because of the way he goes through his relationship to heaven. And yeah, having I mean, done the loss really... of faith thing. 
Yeah, I'm not sure Crowley really evolves that much as a character. I think he... he... Because he, was, he didn't start off bad. No, He I mean, started he... off questioning. Yeah, and he keeps questioning. Yeah. And I think what Crowley finds is actually a bit of peace with himself in that he realises yeah. that actually it was probably all right to question, really. Yeah. Um, and he's managed to get a pretty good life out of it that's yeah. probably a bit nicer than being in heaven. Like, Crowley becomes more and more human. Yeah. And I think Aziraphale does eventually... But is more conflicted about that. Yeah. Because he's always thought he's on the good side. But to go through that relationship and then see them have their, their breakup scene. I mean, it is yeah. it's a breakup scene in the bandstand with that music playing. But also, if uh-huh. you think about the pacing of this compared to the book. Yeah. The book comes... To the, obviously, we're re- reaching the halfway point where the book comes to this very natural shift of, okay, the end of the world is about to start. Yeah. While that's happening here, there's actually very little tension in this kind of middle section and yeah. it needs something to happen at the end of this episode. Yeah. And this breakup gives it that tension that the book kind of... that the TV series needs more than the book. I think it's a really because good thing. Because it needs to be sectioned. Yeah. yeah. Because it needs to be sectioned the way it does and each episode needs kind of a thing to end on. So the first episode ends on, you know, welcome to the end times. Um, and the second episode ends on... Uh, whatever the second episode <laughs> Jesus sorry my notes something are such a else mess. yeah yeah the second, ep- second episode ends on Aziraphale figuring out who the Antichrist is sure this needed a hook to end on mm. and the hook is Aziraphale and Crowley breaking up yeah so it adds a bit of narrative tension that would have been missing otherwise and that the book didn't need because you, the book yeah. just kind of Careful. keeps going so, yeah so I thought that was a that was a good bit of writing yes that I liked but I did think it was weird that that was a rendezvous point because oh yeah I mean the bandstand is still a terrible rendezvous yeah. point <laughs> it made for a really really good series of shots yeah I mean which is obviously where they picked it yeah, yeah. <laughs> um which takes me uh, shifting morality and this is what I brought up with Crowley in the Noah scene mm-hmm. neither of them have particularly black and white morality for an angel and a demon no Crowley is the one that points out it's really cool to be drowning kids Aziraphale leaves the French revolutionary really uncool to be drowning kids oh yeah yeah uncool sorry <laughs> It's really not cool to drown kids, dude. <laughs> Aziraphale leaves the French revolutionary to die in his place. Yeah. Which is a bit... I mean, okay, so he was going to kill him, but... Yeah. That seems a bit... Weird. Yeah. There's a couple of little moments And he like doesn't that. look that conflicted over it. Yeah. And a big part of the con- conflict between Aziraphale and Crowley at the end is... And a big part of the conflict between them uh, in the whole thing is... Okay, we get to the Antichrist. Are we going to kill an eleven-year-old boy? Yeah, like, and that's the thing they are both grappling with. And Aziraphale's yeah. almost Aziraphale really wants to stop the apocalypse, but is almost more willing to kill the boy than Crowley is, or more willing to have him killed, more willing to have Crowley kill him yeah. specifically because he keeps yeah, saying, well, "You can like do it. You're the demon." Seem to value human life as much as long as it's not him pulling the trigger. Yeah. So he didn't kill the French Revolutionary. He just knew he would be killed. He just left he didn't there to die make when the he place went for flood. He just watched it happen. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of that is because of his own. Is as far as he's concerned, the French Revolutionary is a kind of on hell side. Mm. So I thought the actual way you see the different moralities of Aziraphale and Crowley was really interesting because neither of them are particularly good or bad. Yeah, and in some ways, Aziraphale almost performs like if you're going to keep score, more evil acts because he thinks he's, it's in the greater good because he's got more faith to heaven and Crowley doesn't really have any loyalty to hell as loyalty is to himself. Yeah, I suppose it's the 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 kind of philosophical thing of whether it's an evil act if you just watch it done and watch it happen and do nothing, which 
I think most people now agree yes. Yeah. But possibly that that's quite a shifting. That is a very shifting thing. thing. Yeah. And then if you also look at uh, is what's more important, the action or the intention? Yeah. Which is something we used to talk about in ethics classes quite a lot. Yeah. And obviously Crowley. Or is, the con. Is the is it action, intention, and consequence, or is consequence and action mixed up together for that one? Uh, I think we always sort of would mix up action yeah. and consequence. Bearing in mind that I remember what happens in the good place a lot more than ah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> which is probably not helpful. On to something a bit more fun. Yeah. Um, the Shakespeare scene. Oh yeah. Love the Shakespeare scene so much. I'm sure you do. Go I on. It. All right. Go on, I'm wax lyrical about it. I'm a nerd. All right. I mean, the Globe Theatre is just really fun. Have you ever been to the Globe? No. So good. Sorry, the Pagoy. down, didn't it? Okay. Yeah, but it was rebuilt. And you oh, can right, go okay. see plays there now. It's a, it's still only a fiver to go oh. be... Yeah, the, t- the tickets for the Groundlings bit, if you stand, are only a fiver. I'm not fucking standing for a Shakespeare play. What's Mate, they're more, it's more comfortable than sitting on those little wooden benches that cost yeah, 35 quid each. It's great. No, I went to... I saw Amelia there, which was... It isn't a Shakespeare play, but it was a play about Amelia Bassano, who was potentially Shakespeare's Dark Lady. And, oh, you did tell me about and that. And it was that such... And I was cool. leaning on the stage watching mm-hmm. the whole thing. The actors are right there in front of you. If it rains, you get wet. Yeah. It's great. I saw a production of King Lear there. Uh-huh. And it was just perfect timing. It started chucking it down during the storm scene. Great. No, it was great. I mean, yeah, was... that would be cool for the performance. It's I, so I immersive. I like being cold and I don't like standing up. It was, it's amazing. Like, genuinely, if you... <laughs> Any listeners who are nearish London, uh-huh. go see something at the Globe. It's totally worth it. And like I said, it's only a fiver. Mm-hmm. And there's also the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse there, which is a little indoor building they use in winter where they use no technology. So it's all candlelit. And... Oh, that's quite Very cool. Yes. Um, is also I also really like the comedy of like the really early developing productions of Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, the fact that no one's come to see it and yeah. it's a total flop, and Shakespeare asking them to do a sort of "He's behind you" yeah. type moment <laughs> because that's what the like, theatre yeah. would have been like in <laughs> those times. There was a lot more heckling, wasn't there? There was yeah. a lot more heckling. Um, nothing was sacred. Um, I like the "to be or not to be" speech, but yeah. I even saying Macbeth wasn't bad luck then. No, it wasn't. That was uh, 1700s, I think. That really became like yeah. a, a, a superstition. Yeah. <gasps> Hot potato off straw struck pluck to make amends. <laughs> Sorry. I'll stop with that. It's fine. We're not, we're not I'm not by any stretch ball. of the imagination on our stage. No, not even slightly. Um, yeah. I, I obviously like the to be or not to be bit and the yeah. fact that it's Richard Burbage. Um, and there's a nice throwaway line of Crowley saying age does not... Um, no, I can't remember the quote now, but it's something that's it's, it's in a one nice of the line sonnets. and Shakespeare goes, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's something from one of the sonnets. But I found this quote from Douglas McKinnon in an interview where he was talking about filming in the Globe. Mm. Um He's the director, sorry. Yeah. yeah. There's a scene in episode three where we go to the Globe Theatre to see the first week of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Neil originally wrote that scene. It was the first week of Hamlet and it was a huge hit. Place was packed out with five hundred people. My team got access to the Globe Theatre for the first time in history to film in there, but they could only get us five hours. I said to Neil, even if we could afford it, we won't get 2,000 people in and out of the Globe Theatre in period costume and everything else. So he rewrote the scene better and made it the first week of Hamlet and it's a dud and nobody's coming, nobody's turned up. And suddenly you see the architecture of the Globe, it's a great gag and you can see David and Michael. Yeah, so Um, uh, logistics wins the day. Very much so and I'm glad it was like that and also that you have Crowley on his way out doing a little miracle and so I really like that. And yeah, the only other thing I had for this episode was... uh, there's a scene where Adam and his parents are watching TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can just hear a, you can just hear a couple of lines in oh, the background. Show it to me. I, I want us to read the script. 
so yeah so i knew that the actual script for the tv show that was playing in the background existed um and i was pretty sure neil gaiman had tweeted it at some point so i started looking through his twitter and his instagram and i couldn't find it so i tweeted him mm-hmm. and said i uh, i'm looking for this excerpt and it's for an important podcasty thing and can I we text all that yesterday yeah, we did. Okay. <laughs> there it is. I tweeted him and said I was looking for this thing, and he said he thought it was on Tumblr. So I went back through his Tumblr and found it, um, and got retweeted by Neil Gaiman in the process, which was very cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like I'm such a sad fan girl. No, no. I, I, I mean, I, I yeah. agree. I and feel if, the same way. I'm just not very emotive in my voice today. If any of our listeners for this episode have come to us having seen that tweet, then hi, welcome. Hi. 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 So we've prepared a dramatic reading of what's on in the. And by prepared, prepared I mean, is a very strong word. This is what's on in the background with Adam's parents watching TV while Adam's trying to tell them about the magazines. You look at me and you see the Queen of England and Scotland. No, I look at you and see a woman. A woman whose life you are going to have to protect with your own. As long as you're with me, Your Majesty, you're safe. You can't protect her. You're tied to a chair with a bomb on your lap. You made one huge mistake. You frisked him for a gun. You didn't frisk me. What? Sound of a swift fight. So can we just get the dog to make some noise? Where did you learn to fight like that, your majesty? Before I was queen, I was a semi-professional kickboxer. I did not know that about you. Class A writing. (laughs) It's beautiful. And honestly, with that dramatic reading, dear listeners, I think we've said everything we could possibly say about the first three episodes of uh, Good Omens. So on that, dear listeners, I think we've said everything that we could possibly say about episodes one to three of Good Omens. We know that's not true. No, that's but not we really slightly true. Stop. <laughs> yeah, unless you want a five-hour episode. Um, so we'll be back next week at the same time to talk about episodes four to six of Good Omens. Mm. In the meantime... Follow us on the internet, on Instagram. At the <laughs> Not Truth... in real life, please. <laughs> Not in real life. Unless you know us already, in which case... No, like... still don't follow us. Don't oh, yeah, no, no, don't do that. Uh, anyway, follow us on Instagram at The Truth Shall Make You Fret, on Facebook at The Truth Shall Make You Fret. We're Twitter. giving Instagram top billing now, are we? It's just the order I wrote it down today. Okay. <laughs> Can I just do the outro? All right, fine, it? fuck, sorry. <laughs> Find us on Twitter at MakeyFretPod. Uh, email us your thoughts and queries and albatrosses and castles and snacks at the truth shall make you fretpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts because it helps other people find us. And what do you think, Francine? Well, as we're here, actually, I think we should probably just record the next episode. So can, can I tempt you to another podcast episode? Mm, temptation accomplished. Mm.